welcome to The Lux Files, a podcast for occultists about occultists. I'm your host, Sean, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to subscribe to The Lux Files wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all the new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 29 of The Lux Files. I'm here today with magician, writer, and host of the Arnamancy podcast, Eric Arneson, and you may know him better as Reverend Eric. So welcome, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. I like how you know what episode number this is. There's a lot. I feel like there's a lot of confidence there. Like, what if I'm like, hold on, I don't want this to be released for like another four weeks. You know, I'm so well, first of all, I when so every every time I, I do an episode, um, I always say, oh, this is episode whatever, just assuming it's the right number. Mm-hmm. And I've only got it wrong. No, I've, I've got them all right. Um, I posted on Twitter one wrong. But yeah, somehow I managed to, to get them all right. I think when I start uh, season two, because uh, I'll go back to, you know, maybe like season two, episode one, or maybe I'll just keep, I don't know. I, I'll screw up at some point. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll screw up at some point. But I just, you know, no one cares. No one cares what I have to say. You know, yeah, I mean, I guess they aren't going to. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, well, they first of all, care, no one care what you have to say. Yeah, no one's going to no one's going to like, oh, I'm never listening to that podcast. I can't believe again. you said 29 instead of 30. Right. Um, <laughs> no one cares what I have to say. They're not here for me. They're here for uh, they're here for the guests. Yeah. So I just wing it. I just assume I'm saying the right things. And, uh, you know, as long as I get uh, the guests names right, um, everything else I say just really doesn't matter. So you know i mean all right well i so fred thank you for being here (laughs) it's my pleasure thanks for having me so um how's everything wait no wait you're the guest you you asked some questions you or you're the host right yeah no i'm the host um uh my last guest halfway through um the podcast he uh uh, turn the tables on me and he's like okay I'm, I'm the host now I'm going to start asking you questions which I mean you're more than welcome to do because I had uh, John Tenney did that to me as well he's like okay I'm going to start asking you questions I'm like bring it on I mean you know it's all good I mean if I have questions at some point I might ask them of you or maybe I will just you know write them down somewhere and spring them on you later there you go <laughs> there you go I need to drink. I need to be half drunk when I do my podcast because I think it would be more fun um, for like the guests to spring surprise questions on me and they'll be like, oh, what city do you live in? And I'm like, "Uh, I don't know. Episode 29. I don't know. I'm drunk. (laughs) I mean, you're in Canada somewhere, right? So there's like one city up there. Well, no, there's two cities and I'm, <laughs> and I'm located near neither of them. I So I'm in Thunder Bay, uh, province of Ontario. So I'm on Lake Superior. So I'm kind of, I'm basically central Canada and I'm near nothing. Um, like you have to drive eight hours uh, either west or east to get to another city. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, there's little towns along the way, 
but there's yeah there's oh, yeah, i mean I, i've seen nightbreed I, I don't know what that is who you should put it in your list of movies to watch okay it's got monsters it's based on a clive barker story it takes place in rural canada oh interesting okay yeah yeah um yeah so uh so yeah so the two cities that exist in Thunder in canada i'm near neither of them so <laughs> yeah yeah oh man the inhabitants of the other two cities are going to be really pissed off that we didn't say there were four right <laughs> <laughs> when i lived in texas uh that was really nice because well i i i lived in houston and also in austin and that was nice because you could you know you didn't have to drive very far very long to be somewhere else mm -hmm. and there's some great you know little towns and whatnot in in texas that are worth you know kind of exploring and and whatnot so that's nice having you know lots of and plus to not having winter i mean the winters up here like the the one highway that transects or bisects whatever the proper word is canada um the trans canada highway uh often gets shut down um because you know the weather so so bad in in the middle of winter so i mean yeah in winter time like i'm not about to hop in my car and start driving uh anywhere y you know what i mean so it's just it's mm -hmm. very yeah it's uh it's different different <laughs> Okay, well, enough about Canada. Right. Yeah. Right. Ask, okay, let's let now you have to ask me some questions. Yeah. Yeah. There you okay. go. All right. Okay. okay. Yeah. So yeah, you know we're gonna just jump right in then. Uh, okay. Let's do it because no one wants to hear about Canada. So um, so as I was explaining uh to you uh before we hit record and all of my listeners know by now is I like to start right at the beginning, um and explore that that um that moment or or like series of events that got you kind of started on your your you know magical path spiritual path like however you want to define it so um that's a great place to start yeah it is a great place to start and it's actually kind of a difficult thing for me to pin down exactly like mm -hmm. uh I wasn't raised in a very religious family, so we didn't go to uh, like a Christian church or anything of that nature. In fact, I've never really been a member of a of a church, really. Mm -hmm. um, but we did go to a Unitarian Universalist uh, congregation or Unitarian Universalist church, whatever. Maybe that's does that count as a church? Possibly. Um, and so I guess I had sort of an early exposure to uh like spirituality or at least a i don't know a sense of like the importance of a spiritual community without mm -hmm. ever getting indoctrinated into anything yeah um, and in fact i remember you know i was like a boy scout when i was a kid and one of the merit badges is like the religion merit badge and and it involved like all you know answering all these questions about your church and i remember going to my dad and being like none of this makes any sense and he's like i don't know what unitarians do for this merit badge let's <laughs> let's talk to the Unitarian Pope or whatever they had. And, <laughs> um, and like, so there's, there's some sort of central Unitarian Universalist, uh, I don't know, council or right. authority. And they sent me like this little workbook, like what is a Unitarian Universalist? And 
I don't really remember any, but it's not something that really stuck with me. Um, I would just assume but, they'd, they'd all be like pot smoking hippies, I would think. They Well, I mean, I would guess you know, it was it was a long time ago, so it's hard for me to really have a sense of how much pot smoking was going on, mm. there, you know, because I was like, there was still like a youth group. So it was, you know, a bunch of adults who, you know, shoved their kids off into a youth group. And we played Dungeons and Dragons in right. the bathroom of the Unitarian church which i think yeah we met in a fraternal hall like a knights of pythias hall uh so maybe dungeons and dragons was my first exposure to the occult right okay but what i do recall is uh when i was a kid we used to take um frequent you know sort of like weekend trips out to the coast and there's this little town on the oregon coast called bandon that is uh it's adorable if you live in oregon and you haven't gone out to see bandon you should do that it's a it's a really cute little town and uh back then in the 80s there was a um, bookstore there that had you know like tarot cards and witchy shit and i remember getting this is another thing I can't totally recall, uh, but I, I got a tarot deck at one point and I got uh, some books on Wicca, uh, probably like a Raymond Buckland book or a Scott Cunningham book. Right, yeah. And, uh, that was kind of my early exposure, although even like how old were you at that point? You know, I was probably junior high, like maybe eighth grade. Okay. Maybe, you know, my folks didn't really care. I mean, they sort of just encouraged me to read whatever I wanted to read and mm -hmm. let me explore whatever I wanted to explore. Um, and so I guess I had kind of a, uh, you know, I mean, I, and even that doesn't feel totally like it was the beginning because I know that there were times before that when I was like studying, you know, the, like the UFO books and secret society books and like the, you know, like the time life series books and all that kind of stuff. And yeah getting exposed to all of this, the weird stuff very early on. Um, and then in the late 90s, I uh, started studying like Hermetic Kabbalah. I had this, uh, by that time I was living in Ashland, Oregon, and I had this teacher named Meryl Ward who was teaching like a Hermetic Kabbalah class. And I think that was probably in like 1999. Okay. Um, and, uh, and after that, I started getting into uh, ceremonial magic and... So I would say probably around 99, 2000 is when I really started to get serious. Right. Like when you were, so when you were in junior high and you, you got these, these books and I guess they didn't have the biggest impression on you. Cause you don't, cause you were like, they were like Buckland or, or Cunningham or something. But yeah. Then, so do you at least remember, like, did you actually, you know, read the books and be like, Oh, I want to try oh, yeah. this ritual Absolutely. or this spell or. Um, I remember one that really had a huge impact on me was uh, Scottish Witchcraft, which I think is a Scott Cunningham book. Okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, I loved that book. I actually, like, remember going to, like, a Highlands game thing somewhere in Oregon and buying, like, a Dirk and thinking, like, oh, I'm going to be a Scottish witch. I mean, okay. I'm, not, I'm not even remotely Scottish. I don't know what the hell I was <laughs> thinking, but uh, but I did get, like, a really cool Dirk, you know, like, a nice long Dirk, and I was sort of like, this is it. I've got a magical tool I had like an altar set up. Like I was doing some, I was, I was basically a, a baby witch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at some point, you know, I, I identify with a lot of baby witches on Twitter. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I guess the wick, the, the, the Wicca thing didn't really stick um, because, you know, once I 
found ceremonial magic, it was it was game over. Because, mm-hmm. Yeah, probably because of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how did you? So, how did you discover ceremonial magic? Like through through uh, more book buying? Oh God. Hmm. Okay, that is also a really good question. I I suppose probably what happened is I continued going to like weird bookstores and buying weird books. Mm-hmm. And at some point, um, I did get like some books on Kabbalah. Um, I think probably like the first Kabbalah book I got was either Dion Fortune's Mystical Kabbalah or just I went like super off the deep end and got... Um, you know, Arya Copland's translation of the Sefer Yetzirah with all of his okay. commentary. You know, the okay. silver book, the one that, like, I couldn't even read it. Right, you know? yeah. I remember oh, bringing yeah, it home and being like, ooh, this looks cool and weird. Yeah. I remember, like, opening it up and starting to read through. And just his commentary on, like, chapter one, I was like, oh, God, I'm lost. And yeah. it, it took me, like, four tries to ever read that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, four tries in, like, two decades, you know. I mean, it was, it was a... Um, so I think that that probably I think it was probably just something I never really like gave it up or stopped doing it. I just expanded my boundaries and just started exploring other things. And then, you know, in my mid 20s, I I had um, kind of this feeling like, uh, you know, I suppose probably a lot of occultists, especially ones who get like really into ceremonial magic and stuff, they kind of have a feeling of uh otherness or like not belonging or like something isn't finished or something hasn't started like there's a thing that hasn't happened that has yeah right and so i was sort of dealing with this and i was kind of like you know maybe maybe i need to look for like some sort of initiation maybe i need to be like taken through some sort of weird ass ceremony you know Mm -hmm. like the good old like the old days you know right so uh in the same year i started a really serious uh study program going through um uh, donald michael craig's modern magic uh with an online group i think we were it was a yahoo groups email group okay yeah and uh, yeah called tamarisk crescent uh i know that there's still some of the tamarisk crescent people out there i've lost touch with a lot of them but i i still know where a few of them are um and at the same time, I also uh, pursued a membership in Freemasonry. So I got initiated into Freemasonry and started doing ceremonial magic right around the same time. And uh, and that, you know, again, it was it was like an incubator. You know, it was still all of this stuff. It took forever for me to really kind of come into my own. Yeah. But uh, very shortly, like just after a couple of years of being a Freemason, uh, John Michael Greer moved into my neighborhood and became my like next door neighbor. He oh, was, like, interesting. A, he was, like, a block away. Okay. Yeah, we we had met. Um, <clears throat> I think we'd met online, on like a Masonic dis- discussion group, and when he moved into the neighborhood, and I got a chance to meet him, and you know, for realsies, and we were both like, "Holy shit, this is, this is like weird city now." And we, I used to you know kind of go over to his house, and he would like walk me through you know, various golden dawn techniques or stuff out of Agrippa or like all this stuff. And we, this is, uh, you know, I mean, this was almost 20 years ago, probably maybe, maybe 18 years ago, something like that. So it was kind of before he had become, um, way into like astrology and pick a trick stuff. But, uh, I mean, he had a library to be envied and I remember his, his wife, I think had this like trunk full of tarot cards 
that she brought out to show me one day and I'm like looking through it and she's like, this is just, these are just the decks I use. We've got another trunk in the back. I'm like, holy crap. That's, wow. that's a lot of tarot. Um, but uh, that was, that was a pretty big influence on me. Like he, he really sort of uh, taught me a lot of cool stuff. So I was kind of fortunate in both, you know, um, getting early uh, lessons in hermetic Kabbalah from Merrill Ward, who I believe is kind of like a, a muckety muck in the, in the OTO in the United States now. Okay. I'm not totally sure. I, I haven't really kept track of that. Um, but having him and then later on um, John Michael Greer and then through Freemasonry, I also met, um, you know, a number of other uh, really interesting and amazing esotericists uh, like mm -hmm. Jay Kinney, who was uh, the editor of Gnosis Magazine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, or one of the editors. He was a co-editor of Gnosis Magazine. Mm -hmm. And so I, I uh, you know, I made a lot of really good contacts and it really helped a lot to kind of have, I didn't have like a local magical group that I was a part of. Like I never joined the OTO um, right, or anything right, right. of that nature. Uh, but I had, you know, like that online group, um, Tamaris Crescent, which, which uh, ended up being a very, very influential for me and, you know, helping me figure out a lot of magic stuff. Mm hmm and then uh, having John Michael Greer as a neighbor was certainly helpful. Um, no kidding. <laughs> now, with, with this, I'm trying to think, you said this was like, what, like 18, 20 years ago? Yeah, it was the early 2000s. So he would have been involved in the AODA at that point? Yes. Okay. Um, he was not the he he hadn't like risen through the ranks to become the the grand archdruid or whatever yet. Um, but there was an AODA chapter down there, and I did go to some uh, some AODA events. What I think that? it was AODA. What was that like? Uh, it was interesting. You know, I mean, I was uh, much more shy and socially awkward back then than I am now. I might okay. still be socially awkward now, but I'm just not as shy about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, I don't, I never really was like upfront and taking part in these things. I was sort of like out on the, on the fringes. I, I, I think I just went to a few events, but one of them I remember was a, oh man, I'm going to get all the details of this wrong. I remember that the, the central deity of the event was uh, Bridget. Okay. So is that... Probably Imolk, maybe Imolk, yes, probably Imolk. Yeah, um, and that was really cool. Like, I remember you know, there were there were there were you know, just various rituals and stuff. And there's a pretty good group, I think there were like 20 people there. Okay, um, Southern Oregon has a really good pagan community that's sort mm -hmm. of like buried in the hills, you know, so yeah, yeah, they're around, but they're kind of scattered and very witchy and and stuff, yeah, um. But yeah, that was uh, that was kind of a yeah. I never really joined the AODA either. I I, I, I stuck with Freemasonry. I wasn't really interested in um, joining any sort of organization that would force me to have a specific religion or or anything of that nature. Uh, so I held out for a really long time. Um, but then uh, another really interesting thing happened during that period of time that I just thought about. Speaking of religions, I got a copy of The Way of Hermes, which is uh, Clement Solomon's translation of the Corpus Hermeticum. Mm -hmm. 
And while reading that, I had what I could only describe as like a religious awakening, religious experience where okay. I was suddenly like, holy shit, I'm a hermeticist. Like this, this is like singing to me. This book sings to me, like these words, the the images that they conjure, the the message that it has, like, you know, the, the confusion inherent in this particular chunk of like ancient scriptures, like ju- it just... It just really, really spoke to me in a really uh, powerful and impactful way. Okay. Okay. And that set me down uh, the path that I'm still on. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. God, John Michael Greer was your neighbor. That's fascinating. (laughs) That's that's yeah. Just that's really a few years. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still in touch with him. Sometimes we, you know, we exchange emails and stuff. But uh, he lives way out on the east coast somewhere now i totally do not remember where but right. um yeah but we we were neighbors for a few years hmm, interesting i came across well i i became aware of the aoda after i joined obod uh the order mm-hmm. of Bards, ovates and druids and you know the their two forms of druidry are very different mm-hmm. um i and I, so he published three books, maybe more at this point, but at this point um, in, in, in the past three books um, about like the AODA kind of style of Druidry. And it's more like, you know, lodge style mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, rolling around in the dirt Druidry, like, like my style yeah. of Druidry and my, you know, so my interest in Druidry and my interest in ceremonial magic, you know, kind of, so it intrigued me, uh, the AODA. I mean, I never joined. Uh, I didn't see much point in it because, you know, like if, if there was like a, like a lodge, local lodge, then, you know, that, then, yeah, I would join, but, you know, yeah, you know, this might have actually been an Obad group too. I do not remember. Mm-hmm. I, um, because I know that when when um, when John Michael talked about that kind of stuff, he mentioned both Obad and AODA because I believe he was a member of both. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I know that, uh, so I mean, he was also like at the time he was publishing a lot. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he got started early and he sort of had this goal. I remember him talking about like, I have to publish one book a year if it's going to, you know, support me. Right, right, right. Because you know, occult books don't sell super well. Yeah. Like some sometimes there'll be like a breakthrough occult book that sells like a you know a hundred thousand copies. But you know, most of the time it's you know small change. So yeah. so he was publishing a lot and uh yeah, I've got a pretty good number of John Michael Greer books where he signed them. But also it was, you know, during a period of time where, you know, Llewellyn wasn't always uh, on top of their editing game. So I'd like come to him and be like, John Michael, I just got your new book and uh, all of the page numbers in the index are off by two. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of his, a lot of the notes that he had, the, the inscriptions that he wrote to me in his books are like really smarmy, sarcastic remarks about like, I hope the index is good enough for you, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but yeah, that was pretty fun. It was it was really interesting. I think that was that was kind of the first point. Like he taught me how to make um planetary talismans. Okay. And I just remember 
so and and I, I remember the process because we had like the two big black books, you know, the big black Golden Dawn book and the big black Agrippa book. And he's like, okay, now go to this section in the Golden Dawn book, and you have to cross reference it with this stuff in Agrippa. And I and uh, uh, I unfortunately I lost both of those. Oh no! Um, I have new copies now, but uh, the copies that I had then, like I was just scribbling notes in the margins and like taking notes and you know dog earing pages and leaving bookmarks in them and. Um, and they're gone, but it's cool. You know, it was before we, uh, we never really did any sort of like astrological elections for the planetary talismans. And I never got uh, really amazing results from them back then either. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, okay. So let's, you know, I kind of pulled you back uh, to John Michael Greer. Um, so uh, you discovered hermeticism and... Mm -hmm you you fell in love and where did that take you well it took me i'm not sure that it really altered my course a whole lot right away since mm -hmm. you know a lot of the stuff that i was doing was golden dawn magic and there wasn't really a lot of other options you know i i think uh knowing about sort of more of the history of what was going on in the in the greater occult world during that period of time, you know, that was when sort of like grimoire magic started to become more popular and all that kind of stuff was sort of going on. But I didn't really get super exposed to that. Like, I don't know if I was part of the wrong uh, circles on the internet or, or what was going on, or if I was, you know, too wrapped up in my own bullshit to mm. really pay attention. Um, but uh, I didn't really start to get a really a good a good picture of sort of like the greater uh kind of like occult atmosphere you know all this other stuff that was going on until probably until i moved to portland at least like 20 2011 probably maybe okay. later um and that's when i really started to realize that there was a lot more going on with this hermetic stuff uh i mean during that period of time like i'd taken a few trips to amsterdam and visited like the the jr Rittman Library, you know, the the uh, Hermetic Library in Amsterdam. Um, and I had gotten, uh, you know, like the, the um, oh God, I can't remember the name of the scholar. I got like the, the Dutch translation of the Corpus Hermeticum in Asclepius. And I got, you know, I, so I was, I was still studying and reading about it and getting exposed to stuff. I, uh, somewhere during that period of time, I got really, really interested in kind of like Renaissance magic and Renaissance um, studies because there was that big, uh, you know, there was, there was like the rebirth of Hermeticism happened in the 15th century in, in mm -hmm. Italy. And uh, so I had started reading like Francis Yates and Mary Carruthers and like all that kind of uh, stuff that was sort of like exploring like Hermeticism and the art of memory in, in the Renaissance. Uh, I'd been getting really into like esoteric Freemasonry and doing a lot of studies with that. Um, and so that was sort of taking a lot of my time. Um, what, so what's, when you say es esoteric Freemasonry, like, what do you mean by that? Like, like through books or through your membership with in, in the Masons? Uh, both, both for sure. You know, um, I, so what is esoteric Masonry? Like, yeah. You know, all right, well, let's take a step back and talk about just like Freemasonry in general, like Freemasonry yeah. at its most sort of surface level is a, uh, 
is a fraternity you know it's a it's a club you know the the largest branches of freemasonry are male only so it's usually kind of like a men's club um and you know the it it's it's all based around ritual like any if anybody out there has ever become a you know an initiated wiccan or a member of the oto or even a druid like an aoda druid or something you have seen ritual that is directly descended from freemasonry so you right. have an idea of what it's like you know there's usually uh, prayers and walking around in circles and blindfolds and maybe some swords and candles and and lectures and like all that kind of stuff. Freemasonry um, sort of presupposes that its uh, members. Well, okay, I, I have to preface this by saying that I'm only really talking about the type of Freemasonry that I belong to. Not all Freemasonry follows the same pattern. It's a it's an old, broad, uh, very um, diverse. Uh, system so there's a lot of different ways that people that that people might experience it but in america at least in oregon what i experienced you know it, it sort of presupposed that its members would have a belief in a supreme being so most of freemasonry uses like uh, architectural uh, allegory and metaphor to teach a system of virtue um, which is an interesting start, and at its basis, you know, that's great, right? Like, it basically gives a, a system where people can, you know, learn more about being tolerant and understanding other people and, you know, doing charity work and being part of a community and, you know, all that kind of stuff, giving back mm -hmm. to the community, those sorts of things. Um, and a lot of Masonic lodges uh, do, or at least used to do a really good job of that before they started shrinking. You know, Masonic lodges would would uh, support public schools and they would do scholarships for students and they would, you know, do charity drives and have various charities that they support and that sort of stuff. Um, but the esoteric side of Freemasonry is interesting because the, there's something deeper and more philosophical and more mystical going on in Freemasonry that is, it doesn't, it really does not take very much looking to see it. You know, you right. peel back like the first layer of the onion and there's just this wealth of strangeness hidden in its rituals and hidden in its symbolism. Um, you know, conspiracy theorists love that stuff. Uh, right, they, yeah. They get, uh, they get all of it wrong, but, um, yeah. but uh, there's just all of this beautiful um, esoteric meaning hidden in Freemasonry. Uh, a lot of it ends up it was was ignored for so much of the 20th century that we kind of like lost a lot of info. Like there are a lot of broken links. But okay. if you just go looking a little bit, you see these things like there's this stuff that I call like Masonic superpowers, which are like written about in some of our old documents, like the Mason's word or uh, which was some sort of like second sight thing. Or there is like apparently an ability for Masons to be able to communicate across vast distances through some you know, psychic power or something, or yeah, or uh, or one that is um, that is really interesting is apparently Masons were taught a secret way to read the Bible. Oh, okay. Uh, which I never saw any evidence of in my lodge, but mm -hmm. in in some of our earliest um, kind of like uh, you know secret lectures, uh, these sort of things are kind of like mentioned. Okay. So like, oh, well, that's enticing but you know it's apparently lost now so who knows um but even beyond that like in the in the masonic ritual that that is sort of extant across the united states today which dates back to a lot a lot of the parts of it date back to like the uh 
1790s or early 1800s, there's just stuff in the ritual that some of it might be wording that's left over from earlier versions. Some of it might be stuff that was stuck in by 18th century masons who are like, ooh, look at this thing that we're doing and here's how it's going in the ritual now. You know, there are things involving like esoteric interpretations of like Jacob's Ladder or um, or there's a whole section in one of the rituals that talks about like the the divine nature of memory and how the art of memory is sort of like the the mystical core of Freemasonry and how Freemasonry yeah. managed to sort of survive. And there's just all this like really beautiful stuff that's kind of like hidden in plain sight in, in the Masonic ritual. Um, so I spent a lot of time kind of exploring that uh, along with some some really, really like important and influential people in my life that I'd met through Freemasonry, met through the craft. So when you when you're exploring esoteric Freemasonry, is what does that mean? Like, uh, are are you with you know some other like fellow Masons, and you're trying to, I don't know. Uh, it is it, a combination of stuff. I mean, it's there's not really like a system. You know, it's 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 basically meaning that is hidden in the ritual in various ways. So there are Masons now who are uh, kind of like exploring this. Probably probably the most public and the most available work would be um, C.R. Dunning. He's published a couple of books. Uh, the, I think one of them is called Contemplative Masonry. And then he has one that just came out that I edited actually called uh, The Contemplative Lodge. Um, looking at those, you, you know, you'll see that there's a lot of influence from um, uh, from uh, C.R. Dunning's uh, other work and other esoteric orders, but he has sort of, but the other esoteric orders are descended from Freemasonry to begin with. So mm -hmm. he's sort of like backporting stuff that people have developed who came, came out of Freemasonry. And then he comes back, he's like, oh, well, we can use these to explore uh, Masonic symbolism, Masonic imagery. Um, so it's, they're, they're fascinating, amazing books and, um, yeah, anybody who wants to know more about like what esoteric Freemasonry is either looking like today or could be looking like in the future should pick those up. Okay, okay. But so when when you're saying like you were exploring esoteric Freemasonry, just as a, um, like, it's it's not like you were, you, you and other fellow Masons were extracting, um, pieces from existing rituals that had you know an esoteric kind of flavor and let's let's put together like a magic mason kind of system yeah we did do that a little bit there was some okay. of that going on but there was also um a lot of like uh discussion a lot of like philosophical discussion right. or theological discussion that kind of like was exploring stuff that that either the masonic degrees were talk about or you know, a lot of Freemasonry, Freemasonry is a very syncretic system, like, mm -hmm. like most, like most systems, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, for instance, um, in Ashland, so John Michael Greer was part of my Masonic Lodge in Ashland also. Okay. Um, but another member of my lodge down there, uh, uh, Scott Carter, Father Scott Carter, I guess now he's been ordained. Um, he, uh, he was a really important um, mentor for me also. Like he basically taught me kind of like the language of theology. Like after lodge meetings, we would go to the Hong Kong club in Ashland and we would like drink brandy and smoke cigars and say hi to Bruce Campbell and talk about like 
you know, theurgy and, um, you know, the nature of the divine and like, you know, panentheism and, and, you know, all of this stuff that was sort of like, uh, I mean, it, it totally fed into, you know, my love of hermeticism, you know, it was kind of around the same time. So I was sort of like, oh my God, this is, this is all I need. You know, this is, what, yeah. this is what I'm thirsty for. Um, so that was sort of like a really big, uh, that was a really, really impactful and important part of my life. You know, I learned a lot of stuff about how to think about um, these sorts of topics, how to talk about them, uh, new things to explore and new places to look. You know, like I got introduced to like Plato and all of the Neoplatonists who came after him. And, you know, I read, you know, Thomas Taylor translations of like Iamblichus and all that kind of stuff and Plotinus and, uh, maybe poor free i don't remember if i ever read poor free <laughs> but possibly oh uh i assume if i'm gonna keep my street cred i should probably just claim to have read poor free. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, was you know drawing out that magic in these masonic rituals what was that what was that like what was that experience it was it it was a it was a lesson in I mean, I've never finished a college degree, so I'm I'm very much like an amateur scholar. But doing that was a lesson in like analyzing historical texts, learning how to pull meaning out of historical texts, and look for uh, clues and um, and understanding of stuff that you know was two three hundred years old, um, which which led me you know which which is just a, such a vital skill, you know, being able to do like a close reading of something, um, which is strange in Freemasonry because a lot of the texts that we're looking at are parts of our ritual, you know, right. where I would probably hear, you know, like the candidates lecture, you know, 10 times a year or something like that, but probably not that often. No, no lodge grows that fast really, but, but, you know, you, you hear them a lot because you'd practice them, you'd learn them yourself, but, uh, but there's so much to do. There's so much to like shove into your mind that you don't necessarily always do a close reading, even when you're memorizing. Right. So like yeah. sitting down and sort of being like, what does this mean when it's talking about, um, you know, the the tools and symbols of architecture being expressive symbols, or what does it mean when it's talking about like, uh, you know, Jacob's dream of a ladder and the way it reaches up to heaven, and like what is what you know what do these various things actually mean? Like what am I actually saying out loud? Is there mm -hmm. more meaning to it? Is it or is am I just like pushing air through flapping meat? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was just sort of like learning how to slow down and examine things closely. And what documents, it, did, what documents did you have access to? Like just what your lodge had? Or um, almost all of it is publicly available, right? So a lot of it oh, is okay. like document. Okay. You can find almost all the stuff on archive.org. You know, uh, okay. uh, the book M is a really interesting book. Uh, there's uh, also the, the like the Philalethes Society republishes a lot of these things too. But, you know, there, a lot of these are just, you know, manuscripts that are in libraries that, people ignore okay you know oh. it's the same thing that we see now in the occult community yeah you know where we've got like joseph peterson and stephen skinner being like how come nobody's ever published this grimoire before why were you guys always ignoring this uh it's because there's just a an enormous enormous amount of uh old manuscripts that mm -hmm. you know we a lot of the weird stuff just gets ignored if it's too weird and your ancestors were doing it and you're just gonna be like uh I'll just leave that for some future generation. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, if you're a Mason and you're not 
you know, interested in, you know, the esoteric side of it, magic, mm -hmm. anything like that, I, you know, I guess you're going to look at some documents and be like, yeah, I'm just going to. Yeah, pretend. then you just skip it over. You're like, I don't need this. This has nothing to do with our spaghetti dinner. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's interesting, though. That That's uh, that's very interesting. I think that's, uh, you know, talking, you know, about the rituals and the documents like that. I think that's great fodder for, uh, as, as you said, like the conspiracy theorists. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I yeah, love it. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. I think one of the really interesting things uh, that you can look at sort of in comparison, like if you go to, you know, like the Golden Dawn knowledge lectures, you know, mm -hmm. you, you can see that those are just packed full of all of this. Like, here's the ceremonial magic that you got to learn to be in the Golden Dawn. Here's the Kabbalah. Here's all this kind of stuff. But they say it like really plainly. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the Golden Dawn doesn't really make as much of a separation between like esoteric and exoteric it's like here are the knowledge lectures here are, here's all the stuff here's all the symbolism like it's sort of hammered home like you're supposed to do esoteric stuff with this yeah yeah you know, with freemasonry it is set up so that it kind of almost feels like freemasonry is a way for like the esoteric knowledge to kind of like ride along through generations of like nobody giving a shit about it and then sort of like it percolates up every once in a while yeah 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 and i mean that makes sense like all the you know uh uh, the the creators of the Golden Dawn. I mean, they were all Masons. So mm -hmm. you know, in, in a in a in a way, you can look at the creation of the Golden Dawn like a magical branch of the Masons. You know, they want oh, yeah. they wanted you know the the esoteric um, aspect, and it wasn't there in the lodge. So all of us Masons are going to get together and we're going to create a mm -hmm. magical Masonic order, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really, I think it really, if you look at the way that the, you know, their lodges are laid out and the degree systems work, like that totally, it feels like that for sure. Yeah. But also, you know, they started something. Well, I mean, they weren't even the start of it. You know, that that sort of idea of like the lodge system being a, you know, clearinghouse or container for magical operations, um, you know, probably started before the golden dawn you know there was there were there were there were other kind of orders and then in the, in the uh, 1800s that were doing it and even like the aoda i think you know that came out of freemasonry too where it, it, it was at least partially inspired by it oh no it absolutely was um uh before obod so i joined obod in 2006 i think it was and the the bardic grade which is the first grade um the the grade material was just freshly revised and so at some point it may have been a year or two years prior to that i had ordered they they'd send uh obad would send like the first month uh of the obad lesson for free kind of like you know here check it out blah 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 oh yeah first and, it's on us <laughs> What, what's yeah yeah <laughs> and um in one of the gwers they they give sort of like a like a, a history um knowledge lecture of obod but of revival druidry and um it, it, i mean it comes out of it comes out of um masonry uh the first uh group was like in 1717 
and how, you know, they, you know, they became more fraternal, more like a social organization. And then there were the offshoots and, you know, then you had, you know, you got OBOT out of that and AODA out of that. But yeah, it all, it's, you know, branches on a tree, basically. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, and that brings me back uh, to uh, a lecture that John Michael Greer used to give in in Masonic Lodges that he called a uh, oh, he had it was a really clever name it was something like the really big chart lecture mm. where he had he had made like this big chart you know multiple pieces of paper that he would like start to stretch out and be like here's Freemasonry and here's all the branches of all the occult orders and fraternal groups and stuff that came off of it. <laughs> well, I would think that all you know. Uh... Uh, you know, Knights of Columbus, the oh, yeah. Knights Royal of Columbus Order of the Moose. I mean, I mm-hmm. I would yeah. think that all of them. Yes, all of them. Yeah. Even, you know, Wicca is kind of Freemasonry's grandchild. Yeah. Which is interesting. Now, it's, when it's, we when we say Wicca, we're not talking about 90s version of Wicca where Wicca. We're talking about like initiatory Wicca. Yeah. Like you know, the, back in the 90s publishing world, Wicca, witchcraft, and neopaganism were all like just different words of the same thing. That's oh, yeah. when we say Wicca in this instance, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about witchcraft and we're not talking about neopaganism. Like we're talking about Wicca. Right. Like, like yeah. Gardnerian Wicca. Yeah. Where you have like the three degrees of initiation, you have the, the so mode at B, which is like Masonic wording. And mm-hmm. you have, you know, you have things that are. You know, I mean, I don't know what the Gardnerian ritual looks like, but um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely kind of it's on the really big chart. Yeah, and it's a lot more ceremonial than um, uh, that that um, you know uh, neo that neo paganism that that kind of mm-hmm. uh, grew out of the the sixties and the seventies, and you know yeah, that sort of like kind of free like, form. Yeah, the neopaganism that you see in most, you know, publishing, especially in the 90s, um, it's more ceremonial than witchcraft. Like, like Wicca is, you know, a lot more ceremonial than I think people that don't know really anything about Gardnerian uh, Wicca. Um, it's a lot more ceremonial than they than they would think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, so I did a lot of, um, sort of, uh, writing and, uh, research, a lot of research and writing went, went into, uh, that period of time. I, I, um, I spent a lot of time, uh, doing lectures at Masonic lodges. Uh, uh, I published a, a lot in the Philalethes magazine, mostly book reviews, but, but, um, like almost, in fact, I would say, 90% of the stuff that I've had published has been in Masonic periodicals, okay. research, research work and stuff. Okay. Um, and some of it has just been like, some of it's been not super interesting, but there have been a few things, like a few rabbit holes I've gone down that have just produced some amazing stuff, like the art of memory in particular, and it's sort of like historical context and the way that it uh, really sort of like came back around and influenced my occult studies is... Uh, hmm. That was a sentence that started off really strong. And I, by the time I got to the verb, I was like, what the hell was I saying? <laughs> so much for the art of memory. <laughs> right. Um, but, but well, anyhow, I guess that's what happened. Like, um, 
in studying uh, in studying a lot of this stuff, uh, I really went down sort of like the rabbit hole of the art of memory. And that research led me into um, just sort of this whole exploration of uh, images. You know, image magic is uh, is basically like the very close kissing cousin of the art of memory. They are they are so intimately uh, intertwined. Like they both use sort of the same techniques, the same um, reliance on imagination and imagery and artwork and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I started to realize that there was like something super big there, which definitely started to kind of like inform my occult work. Uh, so when I was, after moving to Portland in 2011, um, I was still active in Freemasonry. I still am. I still am active. I'm actually kind of taking a year off right now, but I'm still an active Freemason. Um, but uh, I then in a period of uh, unemployment and I guess revolt against society, I was like, Ooh, I need to pay rent. I should probably do something. And I became a professional tarot reader. Um, and, during the course of that, I was kind of like, oh, I should probably try to make this a business. So I started like Arnomancy stuff. Um, and uh, I, I really quickly, I just became so disillusioned with it. I was like, I just, I don't want to just write about tarot. Like this is, this is annoying. I want to write about all this other stuff. So I started opening um, the Arnomancy blog up to more weirder things where I was writing about hermeticism and the art of memory and stuff like that. A lot of, uh, a lot of that. And then, uh, and then I, you know, and now it's today. All right, I'm done. That's it. That's my life. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I guess there was a period in there, like I, I think even when I even when I came up to Portland, I was still doing like you know the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, and like all the Donald Michael Craig stuff. Mm -hmm. But I did really quickly, uh, really soon after that, I sort of started. Um, exploring like grimoires and uh, all of that other sort of stuff. And I started kind of slowly abandoning um, the Golden Dawn things. I mean, you know, you can never really get rid of the Golden Dawn. They, they, they got their weird, creepy little tentacles into everything. So right. you still have to, you know, so I still use some stuff from, from them. Um, but I started just exploring other techniques, other methods of ceremonial magic, uh, a lot of older stuff. Like I, I really... Uh, at first, you know, grimoire stuff, but now a lot of like a PGM stuff, pictures, okay. mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. like that. What, uh, uh, what grimoires really that you work with that you're like, yeah, this is, I like this? Um, I would have to say my favorite grimoire is the Arbitel. Mm, okay. Which I know is so you know the grimoire traditions. Most of them are are fairly Christian. Yeah. And even the Arbitel is fairly Christian, but uh, it's also pretty easy to sort of like strip out the Christian material in the Arbitel and still have kind of a working system. Yeah. Um. But there's just there's a there's a feeling to the Arbitel that kind of like really emphasizes a lot of stuff that is kind of important in my practice. You know, there's this um there's this system of uh, where it sort of like urges you to try to be virtuous and ethical and where it sort of urges you to like be, um, you know, I mean, because I guess what I'm super interested in more than anything else is kind of like the theurgy aspect of it, you know, the the reaching upwards, the uh -huh. like ascent of the soul through the spheres and 
and that sort of stuff. And um, I guess of the grimoires that I've worked with, Arbitel has been the one that I've uh, enjoyed the most and possibly had the most success with. You know, I mean, the Arbitel is mostly about like spirit contact. So mm. that's kind of its thing. It, it doesn't really have like a recipe book of magic spells in it. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice little elegant grimoire. Yeah. It really yeah, is. Although I bet Sam Block would argue that it's not a grimoire, so it doesn't, since well, it doesn't have a collection of spells. But, you know, he's not on the podcast. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely grimoire. Um, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Sam. Um, yeah. Um, what about uh, Anakian? How does uh, that turn your crank? I have never worked with Anakian, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. I do have some books about it. Uh, I've looked at it, and I've kind of been like, well, gosh, that looks really complicated. I am not a man of many props, <laughs> so I don't really... You know, I mean, I try to... I guess a lot of my magic I do keep uh, relatively simple. You know, I mean, I've got altars and, you know, the candles and the incense and, you know, amulets and talismans and stuff like that. But, like, I don't really have the... Uh, Enochian just looks like a lot of work to me. You know, like just so much work. Yeah, you know, it's well, I mean that yeah, that's a tough one because I mean the the heptarchy is is a really simple system. I mean, it's really, really simple system uh to use i mean so my enochian like of course i'm used to uh you know the gd style of of enochian magic um but uh the past couple of months been taking a deep dive into what's called a deep purist uh deep purist. oh yeah 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 like there, there's a there's been a lot of um material sort of like made available for that over the last few years so that's yeah yeah and you know i'm i like my 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 pomp and ceremony and mm -hmm. i i feel my most authentic when i'm doing you know the whole shebang you know the the pentagram rituals the hexagram rituals and you know all like all the stuff that probably 90% of, of people in the occult community would look at and be like, that's a lot of work. That's just, that's a lot of work. <laughs> I feel uh, most authentic as a, as an occultist. And I don't know if it's because like in the back of my head, I mean, I, my first book uh, of, of, you know, of any, you know, occult stripe, was uh what was it called the book of witchcraft or or something uh i got it when i was 14 this was 1992 so was it my... uh, cunningham or... no no this was um uh the complete book of witchcraft by oh raymond buckland no no maybe Wait, there... no no okay so it's not called the complete book of witchcraft uh hmm. the practice of witchcraft i don't know by robin skelton robin anyway skelton. Okay. yeah and so this was 1992 i was 14 so like my formative years was that you know llewellyn boom of of publishing just whatever 
uh, yeah, like a, a writer came up with. Right, right. Oh, so, God. And, and, you know, part of the, you know, big thing about, you know, that era, you know, the, the 70s and the 80s and the 90s was, um, you know, that very unhistorical, uh, oh, we, you know, uh, we practice, you know, the old religion and what oh, people yeah, we're the, we're the daughters of the witches you didn't burn. Right, Never right. Again, right. the burning times. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know if, you know, being, you know, bombarded with that false history in my mm-hmm. formative years, so I don't know if in the back of my head, like when I'm, you know, doing uh, uh, like, a, a, like a druidic ritual, I don't know if in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that there's something a little inauthentic about it because... I'm not doing what the Druids did back then. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that could be the reason it couldn't, I don't know. It's just when I'm, you know, when I'm doing more GD full ceremonial, I feel a lot more authentic. So yeah. with that being said, that was a long explanation for me to just uh, get to my points, which is this deep purist style of I find very fascinating because it's all, like you know you you don't spend 40 minutes in prep work doing pentagram rituals and hexagram rituals um you're praying mm-hmm. and these you know d was was christian and these are all very christian prayers which i'm fine with um i can say jesus without you know being offended um, it sounded a little sarcastic though you want to try it try again like one more time <laughs> no like it, I'm, I'm fine with it you know i'm like it does it doesn't bother me like i'm not offended as a as a uh as a pagan um and i mean i guess if if i really needed to i could rewrite them slightly i mean like stenwick has rewritten them to be more thelemic um so but you know it's i just it's an it's just completely out of my wheelhouse because it's just, you know, you're sitting in front of, you know, your table of practice and, and you're praying, you know, there's, there's not a lot of like hoopla, but there are a lot of tools involved, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't convinced that the tools were necessary for the magic for actually contacting the angels and working with them to achieve whatever goal. Um, there's nothing in, in D's diaries that, that explicitly say that. I was thinking, is it a possibility that all these tools were required for him to receive all of this information? Because he's receiving this angelic language, which we now call a Nokian, which was supposedly spoken in the Garden of Eden. So maybe you need a little bit more like, you know, hoopla and, and dedication and devotion and, and the tools to, you know, to show your commitment and your, your righteousness to receive it or whatever. Um, so I started, and this is a, 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 a with a group of people, and we're all doing this, you know, uh, via Zoom. This is all cyber magic because we're, you know, spread oh. out to the four corners of the earth. You're doing Zoom Enochian. 
Yes. Wow. And yeah, and I'll get to cyber magic in a second. All right. I'm uh, I'm here for this conversation. It's okay. This is, okay. Um, because that's another interesting conversation. But we literally started with uh uh well, so we're we're working with the 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 heptarchy and we started with um invoking one king and prince and all we had were like we all drew the sigil on a piece of paper mm-hmm. white paper black ink no anakian tools and the results were shocking shocking you, you know uh i have had similar experiences Mm. Uh, not not with the Anakian system, but even with you know, because I mean the uh, the Arbitel system is super simple. It's like yeah. it's like you sit down with a crystal and you just pray at it until yeah. you get contact, right? And yeah. um, and it it is just such a lot of these a lot of those things were just so much more simple. We get uh, I think a lot of people who look at ceremonial magic not only you know get influenced by the Golden Dawn stuff, but even if they start to look back, they run straight into like the Key of Solomon. Yes, which is yeah, just. Yeah. You know tool overload right yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but a lot of the other grimoires they they don't necessarily have tons of tools and if you look at like other mystical and magical systems sometimes the tools are you know like even sparser you know yeah. um so yeah that's that's really cool that you were able to get results with such yeah. limited well look at look at the upper melon operation i mean that's such a big operation whether mm-hmm. you choose to do the six months or the 18 months whatever you believe the actual translation uh is um it's not tool heavy and that's a mm-hmm. big you know quote unquote big operation but it's not uh tool heavy but yeah no, no you pretty we, much just need like a giant outdoor litter box and a six-year-old kid right uh <laughs> um so no the 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 results were really impressive and so as we're continuing on though which i found very interesting now see i'm a tool guy like i i i I love my tools um so it wasn't like oh good this is a system i can use without having to worry about tools it wasn't anything like that it was an experiment and continuing on at one point we kind of we got like the message like okay this is great what you guys are doing um you know what you're doing it's time to step it up like you need to start putting in the effort and putting things together Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so i'm thinking that the tools are necessary not for effective magic but for better magic the same way uh i'm going to be a better musician with a better quality guitar than a uh uh uh, kind of like toy guitar that you can buy in walmart's toy set you know what i mean yeah yeah so it's so i i think it's it's not a matter of you know you need the tools to have effective magic i think I think the direction we're going is we're going to need the tools to have more effective magic. And that makes me think to, like I said, there's, there's nothing in Dee's record that says you have to have these tools for the magic, but I think it's implied. I think it's implied just because it's such a devotional 
um, practice because, you know, mm-hmm. praying it's, um, it's humility to, uh, uh, to God and, and whatnot. And, um, showing your, your devotion and your, um, uh, sort of like commitment, you know, to, to the system, mm-hmm. you know, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. And the fact that we're doing this, you know, in a cyber, uh, format is doubly interesting because six months ago, if you asked me about cyber magic, I would have said, well, cyber magic isn't a thing. I mean, you can do rituals. I mean, people have been doing rituals online since the nineties. Um, but there's a big difference between doing like a celebratory milk ritual online and invoking a spirit in a group of people online so you guys are doing the invocation together over zoom then yeah oh that's so cool and you know and you know we we've done the uh we've done it where we've had one operant Mm -hmm. so just one person doing all the prayers the orations and all that um we've done it where we've all done the the prayers and the 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 orations all you know the invocations everything all together at the same time and it's leading me to believe that the internet is not just a useful tool but an actual magical tool Hmm. Because, I mean, you know, we always talk about, you know, the the web of life, everything being connected. Imagine a spider web, all the strands, la, 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 la. Well, how do we describe the internet, the world wide web? If one form of energy is traveling through this world wide web, why not a different type of energy? Yeah, I mean, why not indeed? I mean, you know, and there's even this, sort of this concept of like, physical space is kind of a lie anyhow mm-hmm. <laughs> uh that's so fascinating you know um a couple of years ago i was involved in the uh in the chartering of a, a lodge belonging to the hermetic federation which is a group of it, it's a it's a pretty small group but it's basically like a, a pretty small network of lodges of um hermetic magicians in the classical sense you know we we study like you know, the Corpus Hermeticum and the various Hermetica, and we sort of like adapt stuff from that and adapt stuff from like the Greek magical papyri to, you know, do rituals together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the group that I'm with, I mean, it's it's an excellent, small and amazing group of, of ceremonial magicians and occultists and stuff. But uh, when the pandemic hit, we all of a sudden, you know, we had like basically like monthly rituals we were doing together. And we tried to figure out like, well, how do we do this? Do we like, do we dress up in our magic robes and like do rituals over zoom and we never really got to that point instead we got to a point where we're like how about we just coordinate like we're all going to do these at the same time and then we'll get on zoom afterwards and talk about it okay okay um which was not satisfying Mm. i mean you know some of it was interesting there were rituals there you know uh uh, probably like the biggest weirdest one was um, the Coptic Handbook of Ritual Power, uh, which is which is definitely a Jesus ritual. But uh, like 
you know, doing that alone instead of together in a group is pretty strange. I, I hadn't really connected with a ritual very well before, but doing it on my own, it was a much more moving experience. But um, but it's just, it's fascinating. I, I recently had a conversation with uh, Heather Freeman, who um, who ran an online Gardnerian coven. Okay. Doing like initiations and stuff online. Mm. Okay. Uh, over over like Zoom chats and stuff, which is right, really right. interesting. Uh, and she had a lot of cool stuff to say about it. Like it's neat to see that these sorts of adaptations and things are happening. But even stranger to me is that you were able to actually get like spirit contact and that sort of uh, stuff over Zoom. I, I was surprised more than anyone because like <sighs> I said, um, you know, people have been doing online rituals since the 90s. And that was back when it wasn't Zoom, you were typing. And so I've spent the majority of my life as a magical practitioner, um, completely discounting the idea of cyber magic. Now, like I said, you know, like doing a a Sabbath ritual, like more of a celebratory ritual, That's fine. You know, you're all together on Zoom. It's, you know, it's the middle of pandemics. It's better than, you know, not. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's certainly not the same, but at least you're still, you still feel a bit of connection. And then, you know, we sit around, we're still on Zoom after the ritual, we're drinking, we're eating, we're talking, you know, it's very social. That's one thing. And, you Mm -hmm. know, and I don't know if I would call that cyber magic really. So it's a type of magic, you know, I mean, magic is almost any ritual can be sort of considered yeah, a magic yeah, ritual, but so, yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still magic. It's just not the same. It just doesn't have the same um, desired outcome, you know, yeah. offering up devotion and not necessarily like, you know, calling down a spirit. Yeah. So it was shocking the results some of the results that we're getting and, and um, the same sort of uh, the same visions, the same messages or the, 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 the building off of like, I was like, Oh, okay. I, I was just told this. And then someone's like, Oh, interesting because blah, blah, blah. And, you know, building on that, that original message. And um it's it's absolutely fascinating. It's it's absolutely fascinating because there's no one more surprised uh, than me, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, pleasantly surprised because you know there's you know we're a great group of people. This is uh, my friend Frater RC. He started his Hermetic Mystery School. Oh yeah, I know him. Yeah. Oh uh, right. I, I, yeah, I was yeah, on yeah. his blog or on his podcast. That's uh, right. And uh, um, like a year ago, possibly. Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. And uh, so he he started his this Hermetic Mystery School, and uh, um, so we're together every Sunday. This group, and and like I said, you know, like I'm in 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 Central Canada. There's there's someone else in Toronto, so farther east. He's in uh, the West Coast, and then there's you know people all over the states. Um, so we would never be together if, if we weren't doing this. And, um, so the fact that we can work magic together, effective magic, um, online is, is quite amazing. And, uh, 
but also seeing the progression of, like I said, you know, it was almost like we were given license to start with nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and now like, like the spirits are like, okay, we know you guys know what you're doing and, and, you know, you're, you're dedicated enough to this and you're taking this seriously. So, so the introductory, uh, uh, free course is over. Now you got to hang, you know? Um, yeah, that's so cool. That that does give me hope. You know, my, my hermetic lodge, like the weather is starting to change. Mm. We don't have an indoor space to do ritual right now. And, uh, so we've been doing a lot of ritual, like outdoors in the parks and stuff. Right. And uh, we're sort of like running into this thing. We're like, oh man, how do we, how do we find a space, an indoor space to do ritual? Like, where are we going to go? And we were kind of lamenting like, oh God, we don't want to have to do like that time coordination thing again, but maybe we should try to adapt some of our stuff to be online. You know, and and I think (sighs) during the pandemic, one thing that I noticed was all of these you know, these orders and, you know, these people Mm -hmm. that love collecting monthly dues, um, just, you know, shut down basically, uh, during Mm -hmm. the, we, well, we can't meet up physically. What are we going to do? Um, yeah, I mean, free me. So what are you, what what are you doing? Are you still collecting dues (laughs) from your member? Um, why Uh, aren't you online? And even if you, we're so vehemently against the idea of cyber magic. Um, do classes, do lectures, stay busy. Mm-hmm. You have an obligation to your, well, I'm just going to call them students. You know, like, like if, if you're, members. Like, you can call them members. You have an obligation. I mean, if, if you're, if you're, if you're in the GD, um, you know, and you're working through the grades, you're a student, you're learning. You can't just, oh no, we're just, you know, no classes for two years. Yeah, mm-hmm. no big deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I mean, you know, bringing this back to Freemasonry again, like Freemasonry, uh, there's a there's a sense of like a lodge meeting that in, in Freemasonry that involves like a real ritual, like sealing of a physical area. You know? mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it is really, really difficult or possibly impossible to take the experience of a lodge meeting online. So, so you know, during the pandemic, lodges, of course, were all shut down. Um, at least in the civilized states, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't think people in the uncivilized states listen to your podcast. Me a so we're probably okay. Took me a um, but uh, the uh, a lot of lodges, sort of across the country, and this is actually this was amazing. A lot of lodges across the country sort of adapted, and they're like, okay, well, we can't do lodge meetings, but we can still have like lecturers yeah. zoom chats and it was amazing because all of a sudden you know like i i love speaking public speaking is something that i just really love oh i and, love it yeah. yeah yeah and public speaking at lodges is just an amazing experience you know getting the chance to like share uh you know because a lot of younger people join freemasonry looking for esoteric and occult stuff in it and they they end up being extremely disappointed because most lodges just don't explore it right. so when they get an opportunity to listen to somebody talk about it and be like, here are some, here are some clues you can follow on your own. Here are some things you can explore. Like just the looks on their faces, the questions you get, the reactions. It's just like, oh my God, this is incredible. I want more. Um, but having the opportunity to suddenly do like uh, remote lectures to groups of Masons across the country 
Like it just wasn't happening before the pandemic. Yeah. And then all of a sudden now it's happening all the time. Like lodges are constantly getting guest speakers from the other side of the country, the other side of the world. And it's, and it's really cool. So, so I think some organizations did do a good job kind of adapting and hopefully adopting new technologies that are going to be, you know, huge, huge help to students and members. That's my hope. The next thing that I'm interested in is uh, how to utilize uh, virtual reality um, in, in ritual and and not just in ritual, because I mean, I can, you know, put on a pair of VR goggles and I'm in a temple and I can do a ritual on my own. But, you know, in the case like this, this cyber guild, mm-hmm. we're all, you know, together via Zoom. Well, what if now we're all together via virtual reality and we're in the same um virtuality space temple where it's the same temple and i'm looking around and there you are there he is there she is and because if our everybody is virtual reality for sonas (laughs) yeah and if if our if our magic is effective via zoom it's going to be effective in a virtual reality setting. Is it going to be more effective? I don't know. And my question to that now is, is I don't think that astral initiation replaces physical initiation. I think it can be a temporary fix, mm-hmm. but you do need to eventually follow through with that physical initiation. So So, my theory is going to be that a VR initiation is going to be more effective than an astral initiation, but still not as effective as a physical initiation. Okay, I have some thoughts about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hold that thought for one second. I'm going to pause quickly. And we're back. So I'm not sure if... Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Lux Files. I'm not just the host of this podcast. I'm also the owner of Lelo Gonzalez. I make beeswax and scented spell candles, loose stick and liquid incense, anointing rolls and bath salts. So once you're done listening to this episode, why don't you head on over to my website at www.lelokanzawin.com and check out my products. For your convenience, the link to the website is also in the show notes. If you knew about this, because it was a few years ago, but I had a podcast before the Arnamancy podcast called My Alchemical Bromance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the the original theme of this podcast was going to be, I was going to get together with some occultist friends of mine who are also beer nerds, and we were going to drink fancy beer and talk about weird occult shit. Okay. Um, and it never really took off. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I guess there were quite a few episodes where we did drink fancy beer, talk about fancy beer, but also I got a lot of like negative reactions where people were like, I don't want to see you drinking beer or hear about the beer stuff. I just want to hear about the occult. And I realized that like, okay, I mean, I guess it makes sense. There's not a huge amount of overlap between beer nerds and uh, witches, I guess. Yeah, I guess not. Uh, which doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, making beer is a magical act. But yeah. Um, just as a little bit of a throwback, I have, uh, 
I have a fancy beer here. This is a, a smoked stout from Solera Brewing, which is on the um, the north side of Mount Hood. It's a beautiful, like, small town brewery way out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I've never had this beer before, but it does have flying pigs on it, which I think is that's cute. I love it. I love it. So, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna like pop this open and taste it and let you guys know what it tastes like. Absolutely, I love beer. Me too. I drink. I I pretty much for alcohol drink beer, wine, and tequila. I'm sort of like a beer, wine, and whiskey. Mm. So, um, ooh, it's a beautiful one. Look at it. It's you can't even see through it. Oh, it's dark. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of smell to it. It still smells like the glass just came out of the dishwasher, which I think is. <laughs> oh God, this is rich. It is smoky and dark and malty. And it's like, it's like maple and chocolate and coffee all nice. swirled together. Nice. There you go. That's, nice. that's our, my alchemical bromance throwback. Cheers. <laughs> So back to the VR. Mm-hmm. So here's my, I, I was trying to think about this a little more. Like, while you were describing it, I was kind of like, okay, I have to, like, I, I'm, I'm so resistant to the idea of using VR, but I'm also sort of like when you brought up like the, the idea of a remote initiation, I think, okay, and this is going to get into like art of memory stuff, image magic stuff. Like one of the things that we develop as magicians is, uh, is you know, visualization, the power to use our imagination to sort of like do our magic, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a very, very old concept in, in magic. Um, during the Renaissance, there was this idea of like the phantasmal apparatus. So the imagination is like the sensory organ of the soul. Um, so I really think that like one of the things that we do as we develop as magicians is we strengthen the phantasmal apparatus. We learn how to use it and we learn how to like uh, trust it and um, and learn like what parts of the imagination or the imaginal world are of our own creation or what parts of the imaginal world are sort of like external things coming to us. So so like an astral imagine an astral initiation i think that like one of the one of the the downfalls of that is that the initiate the brand new initiate doesn't know how to use their imaginal faculty their right phantasmal apparatus right like that 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 takes practice and training and time absolutely um, so so i mean and part of the thing about the that that particular sense is that it is absolutely tied to the physical senses. You know, um, in the in the Renaissance, it was thought that like the physical senses uh, uh, recorded physical phenomena, um, but the soul, your soul, was unable to experience physical phenomena. So there was a part of your mind, your brain, that was responsible for translating physical phenomena into symbolic phenomena that the soul could understand. Mm-hmm. Now a remote initiation in a VR setting is totally giving physical phenomena to the user. So it seems to me like that could be, uh, so my theory is yes, I think it would also be, I also think that it would be more more effective than a purely astral initiation. Yeah. I mean, I think you would have to also have it be an astral initiation, but the fact that you could 
you know, stimulate the senses of the initiate, I think is just incredibly important. Well, I mean, all initiation is, is astral, but there's, there's, um, aspects to the physical initiation that you can't replicate astrally. That's why I would think that a VR initiation would be better than an astral initiation, but still, but still not, not as effective or having the same effect as a physical uh, initiation. It would be like an astral initiation is a good, um, temporary substitute until you can you know like if you're working through a great system and you can't travel halfway across the country for your physical initiation but you're ready to move up a grade do your astral initiation start your new grade work and then when you can have the physical initiation do the physical initiation I'm thinking because VR is is going to be more um, more interactive, um, you're going to have more more of a profound effect than you would an astral, especially for true true newbies who are coming to this world for the very first time and they're going through their their first you know, like neophyte initiation or whatever, where they may not have the, the um, imaginative uh, faculty um, to a, a degree needed mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. an astral initiation. I yeah. just, what I don't want to see happen is uh, Zoom and VR replacing oh well we don't need a physical temple anymore we don't need to actually meet up physically anymore we have vr or we have zoom right you I don't mean, want it to turn into like wally world like on the yeah show. i mean that would be ridiculous <laughs> yeah but, i agree yeah uh, i but haven't think, thought but I think, also... think of a vr ritual though mm-hmm. it's not just uh it's just it's not just feeling like you're in the same room temple whatever but you know you're doing um pentagram ritual and you're tracing the pentagrams and you see them in the air and you see the circle what about you know uh goetic magicians they go into a vr setting where they're in the circle there's the triangle they're invoking a demon and when they feel like you know the demon has arrived then you you know press x button and you get a visual representation of the demon appear Mm. in the vr setting in the triangle um these are all enhanced they're not replacements but they're enhancing the the experience Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's an interesting thought it would be an interesting experiment to see what how it affects your magic Oh, with, I mean, working with God forms. Oh my God! Like, yeah. There's, there's some, okay, I I have a I have an idea that would enhance this even more. So, <laughs> in the uh, 19th century, there were uh, sort of like mail order initiation type places. Um, yeah. Some of the some of the names that I know that we've all heard before, but I can never remember. I, I always get them all mixed up, like the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor and the Brotherhood of Light, and like all, you know, there were all these little like three letter acronyms running around mm-hmm. the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, at least one of them. I read about this in uh, Jocelyn Godwin's book, uh, The Theosophical Enlightenment, if anybody wants to go fact check me later. But um, 
uh, in, at, in at least one of them, they had this sort of like mail order initiation thing where they would send you like a script you're supposed to read to yourself along with like these pills you were supposed to take. And the pills were, fi- were filled with like hashish and opium. So oh. you'd like pop some pills, get a little high, do your self-initiation. Um, but uh, I'm not necessarily advocating that in the VR situation. But what if you did a thing where you were like, uh, okay, we're going to do your VR initiation. We're sending you a little ritual kit. It has, um, you know, our temple incense and it has um, a robe that you need to put on and it has like all these things. So you have like the other senses likewise occupied. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, you could, you could do something that was even more immersive than just um, VR. It might be, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Totally- yeah. No, you would still, you would still need to be robed up. Um, and ideally oh, yeah. you would have you still need to wear the magic underpants right of course yeah. um, you, you would you know ideally have the same you know incense going like there's still the real world components that are I'll say necessary you can say important I'm going to say necessary um, because the VR um, is an enhancement it's not a replacement you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would never, the idea of me being in street clothes, doing a ritual in VR because in VR I'm robed. Like mm-hmm. that, I, I no, I would never, <laughs> I would never think of, of yeah, something. Yeah, that's like that a good point. Even, I mean, yeah. I'm kind of thinking like, uh, you know, in, in Masonic um, initiations, which I, I don't know that, it, I don't know that I would necessarily advocate a Masonic initiation uh, remotely if, in any way, but like there are certain props that you need to interact with, you know, you need to put your hand on the volume of the sacred law, you have yeah. to sort of like interact with at least, yeah, I mean, then there's all the stuff like, you know, depending on what order you're in, if there's like secret handshakes and stuff, there's, that's all out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why, like, that's why I'm saying, like, this, I, I, it, it could never be a true replacement of, right. of physical initiation. It's just, I think it would be a better alternative to astral. But these are stopgap measures. These aren't replacements to true physical initiation. Um, you know, you look at a, a, a GD initiation and um, how the God forms react to the candidate. I don't know if you could have the same the same effect in a vr situation i mean the the the, i mean you're gonna run into you're gonna run into limitations there yeah the officers at the other end of of their vr headsets you know they're they would do the god forms you know it's not like again they're sitting at home in their street clothes sitting Mm -hmm. on the sofa doing this but i don't think you would have the same interaction um i i yeah. I, I don't see it as a as a uh as an equivalent i i see it as a better alternative to astral initiation but but not think, a replacement yeah. the physical yeah yeah i think you're i think you're very right in that i think yeah there's there's just some there's just something about a physical initiation that you can't totally replicate in any other way mm-hmm. no 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 I mean, unless you have unless you can like stick somebody into the matrix i guess right <laughs> i think i think back to you know when i was initiated into uh obod and 
and not just my initiations initiation, but the the initiations that I've been a part of, and the profound effect other people's initiations had on me. Yes. Oh man. Oh, that is uh, that is an, an, such an important part of initiation. I mean, you know, the word initiation just means beginning. Yeah. But when you're taking part, when you're being initiated, you know, there's so much going on that you don't have time to absorb it. You right. Don't, you don't necessarily like stuff. Stuff might be happening to you, but you're not going to know. You're not. You know, like I said before, you know, your your imaginal faculty isn't well trained. You don't know what to listen for. You know, uh, a lot of these rituals are so old that they're very verbose and sometimes using very, you know, old fashioned language. And you're not gonna. You're just not gonna catch it. It's like the yeah. first time you listen to a a Shakespeare soliloquy, you're not going to know what the hell's going on. Exactly. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's actually one of the most beautiful things about um, initiations in lodge settings is that sort of repeated exposure to the ritual, uh, taking part in the ritual as part of the initiating team, um, you know, learning the ritual more intimately. Like it's a, it's kind of a lifelong experience. You know, I, I do this thing, you know, I, it's been a long time since I've, uh, it, it's so it's so easy to get burned out on, on lodges. Oh, of course. Uh, Absolutely. But, yeah. Uh, but I mean, one of my favorite things about going to see like Masonic ritual is sitting on the sidelines and listening to somebody else give these like, you know, intricate degree lectures and just thinking to myself, like, what new things am I going to pull out of it this time? Mm -hmm. And every single time I've been a Mason for 20 years, I've probably seen I mean, I've, I've, I've probably seen upwards of 100 to 150 uh, degrees. Right. And every single time I see one, I get something new out of the lecture, like almost without fail. Probably yeah. not every single time. I'm sure sometimes I probably fall asleep. If I'm <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. Like there's, there's just nothing. Yeah, there's, there's kind of nothing like lodge work. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Now, you know, the reality is, is that the most magic you're going to do is solo. You know, even, oh, if, yes. even if you belong to a tradition or an order or whatever, I mean, 99% of your magic is, is solo. Um, but that's, that doesn't mean, or that's not to say that the lodge system or the tradition the 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 groups aren't important mm -hmm. you know because they 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 certainly are and this also isn't saying or suggesting that people who just want to be solo who never want to join a group who never have who never will are wrong oh yeah absolutely you know, I, it, I would not say that no I'm not even I'm not even sure that I would argue that uh, initiation by a group is necessary. You know, I mean, if you look at, you know, probably some of the like the oldest actual workable magic we have is the Greek magical papyri. Mm -hmm. And there are initiatory rituals in there that you basically do to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, you also have like the idea of, you know, like the guardian angel sort of thing, like from a Bremelin or these sort of like systems that you work through, like in the sworn book of Honorius, where you have, uh, you basically go through an initiation. The, the yeah. true initiation is the, is like the spirit contact that, that, you know, opens the floodgates for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't necessarily need a group to do it. And, 
I'm certain that there are plenty of people for whom group work just will not get them there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my initiation happened, but it was just like that ritual was just the start of the initiatory mm -hmm. process. I mean, oh, yeah. it came to completion. I was living in Toronto at the time. It came to completion on Young Street, a busy, loud street in the middle of, of the day. Well, it was the evening. Um, in a completely public setting and it you know in that moment in that one moment my life changed forever on a side you know there like, like was there a dance involved like did you break out into song no no because <laughs> i literally like my uh, my personality just completely shattered into a thousand pieces in that mm -hmm. one moment and it took me a long time to put myself back together yeah. it wasn't a traumatic experience but my point for bringing that up is just like the the actual initiation ritual wasn't the end it was the beginning you yes. know there's oh, yeah. still there's still that that full process that of initiation that follows you know mm -hmm. um yeah you know there's that theme in uh, the invisibles you know where they talk about how initiation never ends mm -hmm. once you once you uh go through the ceremony of initiation it's something that goes on and on throughout your entire life you yeah know? and even and even probably backwards through time you know i mean your initiation is the the ritual of your initiation is is a, a placeholder, a marker, but, you know, time and space are both kind of bullshit. So that that sort of opening or whatever is happening during the initiatory process is something that echoes and reverberates throughout all of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Um, I just had a point I was going to make, and it sounded in my head very profound, and now it's gone. All right, cool. We're even because I had that sentence earlier right. that totally yeah. ran away. So right while I was in the middle of it. <laughs> what was I gonna what was I gonna say to that? Yeah, uh, I whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's um so like uh the Hermetic Lodge that I that I that I helped found, like we have not come up with an initiation ritual. Um it's kind of interesting, like most of the there, there's it's a small group there's like five or six of us and uh most have um a pretty good amount of experience with like previous magical orders or fraternal orders and stuff like that and when we got together we were all sort of like we don't want to do a lodge thing like mm -hmm. i know we're calling ourselves a lodge but we're not we're not going to do the typical lodge stuff we're not going to do the typical lodge initiation because i think there's also there's a danger with ritual that's kind of like set in stone you know that people you know, do over and over and over again, where it becomes like, you know, rote memorization and just, you know, people doing the parts, but not like feeling the parts or building yeah. the parts. Um, and it also turns into, I think sometimes there's this danger of, you know, like if you've got like a multiple degree system where you can like rise through the ranks, um, there's no, there's not always like a way to verify that somebody has achieved the level of initiation that they need in order to get to the next rank. So you end up having, you know, over time, I think orders kind of start to 
get some hollow spots in their in their ability to like really properly initiate yeah so we and we talked about that and we talked about sort of like issues that we'd run into before in other in other orders we'd been in and um and we're kind of like okay well our approach is going to be this instead we're not going to have a leader we're going to operate by consensus <laughs> which is awesome and then the other thing we're going to do we're going to be like well you know we're, we're going to look through the pgm we're going to find initiatory rituals out of there that are all solo initiations and we're going to be like if anybody in the group wants to do one of these the rest of us will uh act as your sort of like um you know babysitters mm -hmm. you know so if you want to I don't know, hang upside down from a the world ash and you know, gouge out your eye and give it to Emir or whatever. We'll to, we'll hang out and make sure you don't bleed to death. <laughs> <laughs> the PPM is, is fascinating. It is. I'm sorry that I just mixed all of the uh <laughs> Norse stuff into the PGM talk, but you know. <laughs> it's all good. It's uh it's uh syncretic. Yeah. That's it's what we do but yeah the the pgm is is fantastic when i was a teenager you know getting into magic and whatnot i i kind of had the the idea that um everything in the local metaphysical shop was all necessary you know and everything mm -hmm. i you know witchcraft and and ufos and and you know every everything every subject that you find in in a metaphysical shop was all you know together and and you had to yeah, you know you had, be, to, you had yeah. to be into everything yeah you had and, to catch them all yeah and so uh seeing references to the pgm in you know um some wiccan books uh references to the golden dawn so as a teenager you know i bought the pgm i bought all these books on the golden dawn i bought 777 and you know you just open them up and I'm like okay I, I i know that this is english but i have no idea what it's saying and um the PGM was one of those books. I bought it because I thought that I had to buy it because there was enough books that I bought that referenced the PGM. Um, so I bought it and, you know, as like a say 16 year old and it's still sitting on my shelf. Like, I mean, I don't get rid of books. So um, <laughs> I think you can see, I have that problem too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, opening up now, just like, you know, when I was in my mid twenties and I cracked open up the, I cracked open the golden dawn books for the mm -hmm. first time in a decade. And I was like, oh, I get these, re this reference and I understand what this means and, and blah, 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 blah. I can read this. I can, you know, I can actually get into, you know, the golden dawn system of magic and, and make this work for me. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting, you know, uh, uh, looking through the PGM now and being able to kind of, you know, make sense of it where, you know, when I first got it, it's like, oh, okay, well, mm -hmm. I don't know what mm -hmm. this is. So I'm just gonna, <laughs> you know, put it on the shelf and, you know, yeah, pack it up with all of my multiple moves, packing up my books and, uh, and yet never crack it open in 25 years or whatever. It's the, it's the third of the necessary big black bricks isn't it right yeah right yeah i uh i mean the the thing about the pgm is it's so it's so packed full of stuff 
Yeah. But it's also just amazing that you can just open it up to a random page and look at a spell and be like, oh, I could do that. Or you'll yeah. open it up to another page and you're like, you need a mummified falcon and like goat <laughs> milk and the urine of your worst enemy. And you have to do all this. And you're like, um, well, I don't know how to get any of those things. Right. <laughs> uh, so, but it, but I, I, I just love it. Like the, the barbarous names in the PGM are probably like, if there are people out there who haven't tried PGM magic, like just find find an easy PGM spell that has a lot of cool stuff to chant and learn how to chant barbarous names, and it, it'll be a um, a life changing experience. You will fall in love. I mm -hmm. promise you, internet. Yeah. <laughs> or your money back. There, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know there's something to the barbarous names and of course, you know, chanting and putting yourself into that aesthetic state. Um, so you can really, you know, do the magic. And I, the idea of the barbarous names, you know, like right now, like I was saying, like with, with the deep purist, um, Anakian, we're doing it through prayer and they're very long prayers mm -hmm. and invocations and and whatnot um in the pgm you know you have a lot of like the barbarous names and in other grimoires you have like the barbarous names and they don't mean anything um but they're you know you're it's it's a focus and it just it puts you it just gets you into that right spot where everything changes and your magic is just so much so much different mm -hmm. than than what it was when you you know tried that spell from that little you know um spell book oh yeah um, like your your first candle magic spell right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it is highly funny. recommend Highly, yeah, yeah. It is funny though, thinking back and looking at how much your practice changes over decades. Of yeah. Oh, yeah. Cult stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been doing magic now more in my life than not because I, like I said, I picked up my first book when I was fourteen, and I am now forty-two. So I don't know what's that fourteen, twenty-four, thirty-four. 26 20, 28 years you know and obviously yeah. obviously you know in that time period well and i mean those those first years those formative years as a teenager they count but that's such a learning process because you're starting from absolute scratch you know when i started getting back into or when i started getting into um golden dawn stuff in my mid-20s that was after you know, over a decade of experience with magic, you know, so that's right, different. Right. That's different. Yeah. But I mean, still... my, my experience is kind of the same, you know, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I was probably around the same age when I got my first witchcraft book and, you know, I'm sure I acted out some of the spells in there and I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I doubt that they ever had any effect or did anything yeah. interesting, but yeah, it is kind of funny to look back and see all that. Hmm. I don't like it. It's not, you know, 
I mean, because when you're a teenager, you do stupid stuff anyway. So like, that's what, what the teenage years are for. So I, I look back at some of the stuff that I did back then and it's kind of cringe, but, <laughs> but, but at least you weren't on Twitter. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, oh God. I couldn't imagine me as, as, as a teenager with access to social media. I think that would be a recipe. Oh, I know. I know that would be for disaster. I have part of my origin story that I didn't tell you. Oh. Are you ready? This is this uh, is good stuff. This is yeah, this is absolutely. spicy. Okay, so back in the day, back in the uh, before the internet was widely available, um uh, I'm I'm a computer nerd and I've been a computer nerd like my entire life, right? But um do you, I'm sure you probably encountered BBSs when you were younger. Yep. They were basically like, you know, they were computers that you could dial into with a modem and it would be like one person at a time and you could leave messages for each other and play little games and do all that kind of stuff, play yeah. like BBS games. Um, but there were also these, uh, they called them, uh, it was, it was, there, there was this network called FidoNet, uh, and which was basically, um, oh God, I can't remember what they called. Was it called a packet switch network? I can't remember what it was, but basically all of these, BBSs around the world would dial into each other late at night and exchange packets of messages to to make like you know to enable sort of like the equivalent of like big discussion groups and bulletin board groups that sort of spanned like the whole world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Fidonet was the largest one of these networks, and it was big and had tons and tons of topics. But there were also more specialized networks, and one of them was PodsNet, the Pagan Occult Distribution System Network. Okay. Um, and I ran a BBS, uh, off of a computer. I mean, I, God, I, I must've started in 89 or 90, maybe like I ran it for a good number of years and I was basically like the PodsNet, uh, node in, in my area. Okay. So I got exposed to all of these like different, uh, discussion groups very early on filled with like occultists and pagans and stuff and had all of these had access to all of this stuff to to read and sort of play with and of course i was on there like arguing and being like i was totally a cringy teenage witch right right it was uh i'm not gonna i don't know if those archives are available so i'm not gonna tell anybody what my handle was or anything like that but um but yeah i was on I was on Podsnet. I was on uh, Alt Magic and Alt Discordia, Alt Discordianism, or whatever on on Usenet later on. Like you know, before social media was a thing, there were still plenty of places for the um, you know socially inept to go online and be like cringy, right? Witchy, yeah, edge lord types. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that uh, I'm really glad that none of that is just available for people to search now i know right <laughs> gosh yeah no i think i i yeah i'm so glad as a teenager uh even like in my 20s that social media wasn't a thing because i mm-hmm. don't know if i would have avoided prison um otherwise <laughs> so. You know, yeah. I uh, I think it's it's just yeah, my my good reputation is intact because there's there's no evidence of there anything. was. Uh, I remember that there was a local. So I mean, you know, when you had your BBS, it was all locals who would dial in. 
so there were you know like five pagans in my town mm-hmm. who would dial in and everybody else was you know you know if you were a bbs user you you dialed into every bbs and played the same game on every bbs and talked to the same people in every bbs in a small town and um there were some like really hardcore christians who would get on to like just argue about religion and like yell at you about coming to jesus and stuff and so i you know i got into like religious arguments with uh uh, one guy in particular who was uh, he was uh, much older than me. He was a local. What did he, he owned? I think like a Taco Bell or something like that, or maybe a couple of Taco Bells. But out of all of these arguments, he would always be like, "Hey, come by the Taco Bell, get some free food, and et cetera, et cetera." And so I'd go by Taco Bell, and like he'd yell at me about Jesus through the drive-through window, and I'd yell at him about paganism through the drive-through window, and I'd get free tacos. And then once I went through, and he he knew it was my birthday or something, and he's like, "Oh, I got you a Bible." So I still have that Bible. He gave me a Bible for my birthday. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, I never found Jesus. I, I mean, can't, except, except in the index. I can't. I can't think of anything more unChristian than owning Taco Bells. <laughs> It is sort of breaking every single commandment, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, man, that was a long time ago. I hadn't thought about that in a really long time. <laughs> Jesus says you can't stop stirring the meat. You got to stir the meat or you're going to hell. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it is sort of like feeding the needy and the hungry. You know, I mean, Taco Bell food is awfully cheap. Yeah. So yeah, maybe yeah. maybe there is a, a hint of Christian charity in owning a Taco Bell. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's funny. Lord. Yeah. Christians don't come at me. I was just joking. Oh, no, he wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, that's those were those were uh, those were the old days for sure. I think you could only be a good Christian if you, in the fast food industry, if you owned a Chick Fil A. No, I think you could be a good Christian if you own a Jack in the Box. Well, that's true because Jack in the Box kills everyone with food poisoning, so that sounds very Christian. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a whole part of the apocalypse, isn't it? Like yeah. Jack in the Box. But also Jack in the Box is very multicultural, right? You know, they ha- you can get tacos and hamburgers there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I miss um, uh, living in Texas? I miss Whataburger. Their I do not know what that is. Are, their hamburgers are so good. It's, it's, Whataburger is like, you know, in, in the South, they're not, they're not spread okay. out um, all over the States. Um I, I mean, I don't know how, if they go, if they're Eastern seaboard, I don't, I, I don't think they're like Northwest or Northeastern uh, state. I know it's more of a Southern thing, but Whataburger is really good. Their, their hamburgers are amazing. Their, um, their, their shakes are really good. It's, oh, I, I really do miss Whataburger a lot, a lot, a lot. I'm not really a big fast food guy, uh, so I like I actually don't even know the last time I went to a Jack in the Box. It's been at least fifteen years, probably. But um, I've never been to a Jack in the Box because we don't have Jack in the Box in Canada, and the only oh. thing, the literally the only thing I knew about Jack in the Box was that everyone dies. 
um, because <laughs> because there's always like food poisoning. So when I moved to the yeah, you know, death comes Texas, for us all. When I moved to Texas, I never went. To, well, see, but I've I've never I, I I'm not a fast food person. But I was introduced. Oh, you got to come, you know, because I was the Canadian. I'm mm. new to not only the states but to Texas. And wait, did you? So you started in Canada and then moved to Texas and then went back to Canada. Yeah. So I moved. Oh, I don't there. think I knew that. I thought you started in Texas and then moved to Canada. No, 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 no. I'm Canadian, and okay. uh, the company that I was working for uh, transferred me to Texas, and then uh, when I moved, oh God, when did I move back here? Uh, 2012. I moved back here to Canada, mm-hmm. and that's when I was uh, 34 years old, and that's when I decided I would stop working. Working and is bullshit. It, yeah, it really is. Um, and um, then I decided to start Lalo Gonzalez. So uh, yeah, but which you know, now is working, isn't it? I see you post on Twitter saying oh. things like, "Oh my God, I've got seven thousand candles to put into boxes." <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't regret it. Um, you know, because I love, I love making the products and I love the customers. Oh, and I love everything I mean, about it's... it. It's impressive to see that you, because I mean, I feel like when, when we first followed each other on Twitter, it was, a, it, you were still kind of like getting started. And it was, it was just like a year or two later when all of a sudden you were so overwhelmed that you were tweeting about it. Yes, because. <laughs> Which is awesome. Yeah, because when I first got on Twitter, what I I had my first two distributors at that time, but that was still kind of new. So you know that that whole business was building. I mean, I do I have sales in a month now. Not every month, mm-hmm. but I I have sales um, last year and this year um, that I, I I can have sales in a month that are the same as I did in all of 2017 or all oh, of 2000 is... and you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah well, congratulations. But, thank that's, you. That's but, really like, impressive. Yeah. Like when I first got on Twitter and, uh, and you and I first started following each other. So like that year I can do that amount of sales in one month. So it's, it's exploded. Um, it just took time because, you know, like I said, like I had the two distributors, like my Canadian distributor, my American distributor at that point, but it takes time for stores to, you know, buy mm-hmm. the product and customers to buy the product from the stores and, you know, the demand and blah, 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 blah. Then I got um, my Australian distributor and, oh, oh, so, you know, talking about the Anakian that we're doing, um, you know, uh, the cyber magic. Right. Um, the first Anakian working that we did with that, you know, black sigil on white paper, that Mm -hmm. was it. No tools or nothing. I was like, oh, because we were, you know, going to, um, scry and find out like what colors should the sigil be? Mm-hmm. And by the way, we all got the same colors. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then uh, optionally, we were like, you know, if you want to ask them for something, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, you know, I should ask them just to give me like a little boost in business, you know, like like a, an extra order from 
the distributors oh. month. I'm like, oh, you know what? No, I'm no, I'm not going to bother. You know, like I no. So did I, you though? No. 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 Technically. So while we were invoking Kamar and Hagenal, uh, so that'll happen. Then we finished up. We all logged off. Um, I did my banishings, blah, 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 blah. Went up to eat something. Then I got on my computer to check my email. While we were invoking Kamar and Hagenal, I get an email. It's this woman. She's like, oh, I'm from such and such company. Um, we, we are interested in talking with you about being your exclusive distributor for China and Hong Kong. <laughs> that is badass. Yeah. So, so now I have a distributor for China and Hong Kong. So I'm up. To, you're gonna need to like hire some uh, munchkins or something, right? Um, yeah. And I do this all all these products. Like last year, I made seventeen thousand or eighteen thousand products. Um, I do it wow. all here. At, like I'm sitting in my ritual room right now. I do it uh -huh. all here in my ritual room. That's amazing. Planetary days and hours. Like I, I take mm -hmm. all that into consideration and, and, and whatnot. And it's 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 gotten it's gotten. Uh, big for something that I do in like mm -hmm. a ritual room. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've only gotten a little bit of your stuff. I got some of your uh, Kifi uh, incense and I got a um, first lunar or yeah, the first lunar talisman. Uh, right. Uh, right. What are the pentacle, the first pentacle yeah. of the moon from the Solomon. Um, but it's great stuff. I am totally happy that you're succeeding i will i will order more stuff from you at some point as soon as i stop spending money on other stupid things right <laughs> not to keep stuff stupid i didn't mean to imply that no i don't no, feel no, like no. i'm spending money on stupid things it's just i just got the uh paul summer's young translation of agrippa well yeah uh, that sounds stupid well it was just it was a stupid amount of money like it's so expensive and yeah. then after i had gotten it um uh, Eric Perdue found out that I had it and was asking me questions about it. And Eric Perdue uh, is doing a translation of Agrippa that's coming out in November. Mm -hmm. um, and he lives in Seattle uh, and we've met and we're sort of like acquaintances and internet friends. And the minute he started asking me about it, I just had this like feeling. I was like, oh man, I have to get his translation too. I can't right. not get his translation. Like yeah. that would be such an asshole move. Like so right. I'm, <laughs> that's that's a lot of my esoteric budget for. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, uh, yeah. Books, books. I love books. I you know I I I love books. Um, I probably uh could order well. <laughs> It's hard to say, you know, yeah, I could order less books um, than I do. I mean, um, could you or are you bound by destiny? I think I have a moral obligation to um, uphold the economy with uh -huh. my and, book buying. Yeah, and to support occult authors and other right. authors. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. What yes, pisses me off, though. Stop. You but, cannot stop. Right. What pisses me off, though. And I mean when a book is out of print and it becomes rare and rare to get, of course, it's going to have more money. Uh, I get that. It makes sense. Um, you know, that's just the way, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, what pisses me off though, is that people should recognize 
um, that I'm different. And when I'm like, hey, I actually want this book, um, the, the price, like not even you be like, oh yeah, uh-huh. no, I'll drop the price for you. Like the website should know that. So you basically think that there should be some sort of universal discount code that, <gasps> that, you, that you have and nobody else. I yes. Mean, now, now that is a test of your Enochian powers. Right. That's right there. Sexy. Right there. I, I, I feel I, like. <laughs> I like that a universal discount code. I think that sounds very sexy. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm. Hey, Canal, sure... listen up. Get on it. <laughs> Don't make me put on my Pele ring. It is funny though. Money magic uh, seems to be kind of like the easiest kind sometimes. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I don't do a lot of practical magic and maybe I, don't I should. Um, I've always found that, you know, because I have a pretty good uh, daily practice that I'm, I am I do religiously. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, I don't know, like my thirgy, um provides exactly what I need, when I need it, how I need it, um, you know? Um, so yeah. I, I don't I don't do a lot of practical magic. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I, it, sometimes it's really hard to figure out where the line exists between mm. like, you know, the, the thaumaturgy, the practical magic and the theurgy, you know, the sort of like, spiritual mystical side of magic but and I, I think a big part of it is like for me you know you were talking about your moment of initiation where it sort of like hit you in the street and it was sort of like oh god everything's changed and stuff um for me it also uh was in sort of like a mundane mundane setting where um a big part of my change was sort of the thing where I was like, I'm not like, I'm not being responsible by making money. You know, I, I was in the tech industry and I was, I was pulling in more money than I needed and I wasn't using it responsibly. I wasn't being ethical about the entire thing. Like I wasn't being, I wasn't being a good human. Right. You know? um, and I should have been like, I should have realized it earlier, but you know, self-awareness is ferociously difficult. It's, possibly harder than not buying books yeah although who knows um but like one of the things that really kind of happened was i i just had to walk away from jobs you know and it it was a long process like i did walk away from like really big job i walked away from like the really high paying stuff and i still end up you know i mean now i'm a freelancer so i still i mean there's always work you always have to pay rent and do that yeah but yeah like I do not have a job either, mm-hmm. except I guess making podcasts. <laughs> right. But um. But after that, it always was easy to kind of like stumble into money when I needed it, or to like do money magic or something. It never really, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I shouldn't talk about it that way. Maybe I'm, you know, ruining it. But, uh, but yeah, I don't do a whole lot of practical magic either. Although there are sometimes there are just things that you kind of like discover in some of the grimoires and some of the techniques that are 
I don't know if they count as practi- practical magic or what the hell they're, they are, but... Uh, and it, it, I'm not even really comfortable like talking about them on podcasts and talking about it in public, but I would encourage people to read um, the last dozen chapters of book one of Agrippa and look at some of the weird shit he talks about mm-hmm. and think carefully about what he's saying. It bears close reading. Yeah, yeah. But because magic is really weird. <laughs> it turns out... <laughs> That's a that's a that's a bit of an understatement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're talking about chanting into Zoom meetings and talking to spirits and all that kind of stuff. That's right. that's not the weird part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um who was I saying? Oh, I think I was having this conversation of just the word weird. I think maybe. Yeah, no, it was uh, my last podcast uh, uh, episode with Edward Reed, uh, Frater BT, where um, where it's talking about like how, like, you know, magic isn't weird. Uh, we look weird doing it. Okay, that's, and, yeah, I mean, it can't be weird because it's part of how the cosmos works. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's basically the definition of not weird. It's just people don't really know about it yeah um but we look weird doing it um and i mean i'm okay with that i i would rather people think i was ridiculous than dangerous you know like oh. like, uh, like i i don't need another satanic panic going on you oh, know, yeah, where, me where, me where i'm you know the dangerous you know uh magician getting his powers from the devil i'd rather be ridiculous and people laugh at me you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i completely agree with you you'd rather be the fool than the magician at least from the outside Uh, on the out yeah absolutely yeah absolutely um don't take me seriously think i'm crazy perfect great good good when you know when you're um marching down the street with your pitchforks and torches you know you can pass by my house because i'm just that just that weird dude with a funny mustache right right (laughs) you know yeah yeah Um, yeah i you know i live in a i live in an apartment complex in portland portland is a portland is a fascinating city because of just the abundance of occultists and witches and tarot readers and astrologers mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um it's and and it's also you know it's super like lgbtq friendly and it's just sort of like you cannot be the weirdest person in a room in portland yeah um especially if you're hanging out with uh, katie montana jordan because she's usually the weirdest person in the room i hope that she's out there listening to this right now <laughs> but um but you know it, it's just it's just beautiful because uh it, there are so many communities in Portland that are just super accepting. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to not be the weird person. And I was just thinking about like, even in my apartment complex, like uh, if you're looking at me right now, like to my right, there's a, there's like a young teenage witch living there. Who's constantly doing like weird witch rituals, you know, two doors down to my left, there's a, uh, you know, some, some Buddhist guy who do, does his like, buddhist mantra chanting every day and you if i i can open my windows and i can sort of listen to him 
doing his like droning chants and his bell ringing and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, it's everywhere in town. There's just weirdos and occultists and witches and stuff just like popping out of the woodwork. Uh, so I'll totally be safe. If there's a satanic panic, they have so many people to pitchfork before they get to me. Right. What is it about North the Northwest there? Because it's it, not like... the whole Northwest. Most of it, like if you leave the cities, it gets it gets conservative and Christian and kind of scary pretty fast. Yeah. But um, but I don't know. You know, I mean, most of the you know, like I can you know, in in Oregon. Portland, Eugene, and Ashland are all pretty like open-minded, uh, like religiously liberal and usually politically liberal sort of places that really are very open and accepting of uh, alternative religions and yeah, you know, fringe. So I things. have a lot of customers because I don't just sell to uh, distributors. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I have um, my online, like my website that people can order online, and the amount of people. Um, that are that order for me that are in like the the Portland area or the Seattle area like it's it's astounding you know um, if I were to you know like list you know by how many you know customers mm-hmm. per region um, like California and uh Washington which both have a lot of people Oregon doesn't have a whole lot of people in it um well California and Washington would be up at the top Mm -hmm. uh Oregon would probably be third or fourth yeah 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 for for the amount Mm. of customers that I have yeah 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 and they're the best customers like they're they're gonna be my influence right like I probably probably, you know I just talk about you all the time absolutely absolutely um um (laughs) and they're it's interesting too because uh the Washington and Oregon customers also are the most loyal like constantly repeat purchasing you know what I mean Uh, mm -hmm. uh yeah so yeah you guys have weirdos all over the place there it's great. I, you know, it took me, you know, I mean, I started doing, like, I think I started doing professional tarot reading in Portland probably in like 2013 or 2014. Okay. And I never really did anything to kind of like reach out and connect with the community until God, probably like 2018. And it was just amazing. It was incredible. There are just like, there are, uh, oh, I, I, rem- I went to this event where it was a panel of tarot deck creators talking about like the process of creating tarot decks and getting them published and all that kind of stuff and there were like five people on the panel five tarot deck creators who were all just sort of portland locals who were all like super tarot expert wizard nerds who were in the who had either published decks or in the process of doing it and the room that they were in was packed like they totally sold the whole room out like there were like 30 people in there all people who were you know various levels of like tarot um reading proficiency right right and um and i see it in all sorts of stuff you know like i've taught uh you know before the pandemic hit i was doing some in-person classes at this little occult shop in portland and you know if i picked the right topic the class would sell out instantly they'd be Mm. like we only have room for 10 people and i'd you know the lady ran the shop and posted on her website and then like the next day she'd be like oh yeah it's filled it's filled 
It's awesome though. And it was, it was just kind of amazing. And then, so, and also like for many, many years, I've been doing this thing that I call a PDX occult brunch where I, you know, invite Freemasons and occultists and stuff. And we meet up for brunch and talk about weird shit. And we do sort of a show and tell, you know, people bring their new books or their new tarot decks and be like, Oh, look what I got. Uh, And it was pretty good. You know, there were, there were times where I was regularly getting like 10 or 15 people showing up for brunch, just sort of, casual and it was early it was 10 o'clock on a saturday who the hell wants yeah. to go have brunch at 10 o'clock on the saturday right. except for like really old men yeah um but it was pretty good and even after the pandemic hit i started doing it over zoom and still we'd get like this great collection of like weirdos and occultists showing up on zoom to like all eat brunch remotely together which is creepy i would have to say like it was okay because the pandemic was happening but but in normal reality it is not normal to sit and stare at your computer screen and see 10 people eating right yeah yeah yeah. i'm sure there are people who are way into that and i'm happy for them but for me it was just (laughs) sort of like i don't want to listen to this yeah everybody's making their eating noises and i'm literally just looking at people eat yeah not into that not into that i'm not a foodie so that you know that that nothing about that excites me at all ah yeah. Well, you know, I don't think do they do brunch in Canada? Is that a thing that you guys have up there? Yeah, it's legal. Yeah, it's okay, legal. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. I was just making sure. I, I know that I, in some countries it's not. Yeah, I don't participate. <laughs> like, I'm not. No, like, no brunch. You want to do? You want to do brunch? Yeah, I'll see you at four. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No. I mean, I I uh, I respect your um, practices. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I'm not going to do it that way, but I yeah. respect it. I mean, now the only redeeming quality that brunch has is alcohol before noon. So, I mean, have you ever had a mimosa? Uh, yeah. There's this drink. I actually, I just tried this. Uh, this is apparently a very popular brunch drink called a Caesar, and it's um, it's sort of like a uh, wimpy bloody mary. Yeah, I know what a Caesar is because uh, my mother likes Caesars and they're more popular in Canada than Bloody Marys are. Um, uh, it's the other yeah, way around down here. Yeah, so I've heard people say that it's like a Caesar is a, a Canadian thing. I don't know if it's Canadian. I just know I that. I think I've heard more, that here too. I've heard that. Yeah, too. I just, at least if it's not Canadian, I know they're more popular here than um, Bloody Marys. Um yeah um is it true that poutine is canadian like do you guys actually eat that stuff a lot okay so poutine is canadian it originates in uh, quebec which is our french province you mean quebec quebec uh <laughs> which is our french province and poutine is so disgusting french fries oh, i love poutine melted cheese and gravy yeah you can't get more disgusting than that but you can because now, um, you know, there's like poutine food trucks that, you know, the, the combinations, like uh, mm-hmm. uh, the stuff that they add, I mean, it's just absolutely repulsive. Um, it's well, just we've so got some pretty gross. good poutine in Oregon. Mm. So I don't know. Maybe the poutine's just worse in Canada. I, no, I it's just, no, I just, the idea of <laughs> French fries with cheese with gravy is 
the, I just oh, and the what about it, hold on? What about just French fries with cheese? No, no. Oh, why not? I, what? I, no. What about a baked potato with cheese? No. Are you against cheese and potatoes in general? Yes. That is so weird. I'm sorry. That's just like scalloped potatoes. Oh, oh, God. They, oh, no. They look gross. They smell gross. No. No, no. Uh, they're, okay, look, this, this um, podcast is over. Yeah. Potatoes and, <laughs> potatoes and salsa. Potatoes and salsa. Yeah. Baked, uh, baked potatoes with salsa. Okay. Um, and sour uh, cream, right? No. No, no sour cream. Like, no. there's no dairy in your potato world. No. What about mashed potatoes? Yes. But there's tons of dairy in mashed potatoes. Yes, there's milk and there's butter. And it's and all mixed sometimes in. there's sour cream and it's and no, also, no sour cream. What's there's sour cream you? in mashed potatoes? Oh, you're pissing me off. Um <laughs> when, so when I moved to so today is Canadian Thanksgiving. Oh, today is Indigenous People's Day down here. Yeah, and we don't make as big a deal uh, of Thanksgiving than that Americans do. Uh-huh. Um, so it was never a big deal. You know, we always have turkey dinner, but it's it's it was never a big deal. It became my favorite holiday when I moved to Texas because oh, they, like it was it's bigger than Christmas, mm-hmm. and you know the fall colors and it's just it's perfect. It's perfect, and. Um, yeah, so yeah, you guys like sour cream and I don't get it. One thing, so I like uh sweet potatoes um until they're mashed and that's hmm. just weird and mashed sweet potatoes with um whipped marshmallows. Oh god. Oh. Yeah, I'm not a really big fan of that that's that's pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. So we can uh, we can at least come together on that. And also I do think I love American Thanksgiving. That it is it is fantastic. The, the it really feasting, is. the bringing yeah. together of people like my my parents um my parents moved out to Oregon in like the early mid 70s from Minnesota and sort of like left all of their big, you know, midwestern families behind and mm-hmm. came out here and have been doing sort of like a what I guess what, you know, what kids these days would call a friendsgiving where they didn't really have like a family get together as much as they had like all of their friends get together who didn't have like families to join up with and they've been doing it with the same group of friends for you know since the 70s yeah this and their group of friends are, are all old and have kids most of whom are my age and all of their kids have kids so there's like there's like it's this huge extended uh friendsgiving family feast thing that's been going on for years and it grows and shrinks in size, but you know, at its biggest, it would like reach to like forty some people who would. Oh all my god! And, and it was just, it was, it's just always an incredible experience. Yeah, just yeah so yeah. much food and just legendary amounts of like drinking and eating and singing yeah. and and you know howling yeah. at the moon and that sort yeah. of yeah. And see, like we couldn't have Thanksgiving when you guys have it because by that point you know all the pretty fall colors are gone and there's snow and it's just dreary and blah so (laughs) so our thanksgiving is you know middle of october and the trees are beautiful and they're all Mm -hmm. red and orange and yellow and it's gorgeous and um 
you know, it's cool, but right now it's really mild uh, so far. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was nice because American Thanksgiving is around my birthday and oh. down, down in Texas, not so much Houston because Houston is so much more like, like subtropical where mm-hmm. there's not a lot of color change. Um, but in Austin, and I always spent um, Thanksgiving in Austin because uh, my friend Brian, who lived there, loves cooking, loves doing a big, even if it was just the two of us, mm-hmm. uh, a big, huge Thanksgiving dinner. And so in Austin, there's more of the color change. And it's just, it, yeah, it's just, it's the perfect time of year because the colors are perfect. The weather is nice and um, pretty. So yeah, some pretty awesome, awesome food, except for mashed sweet potatoes with whipped marshmallows which was just yeah that's just gross that's yeah and i hate pumpkin pie so i mean jesus i i don't know what to say about that (laughs) (laughs) i just don't know what to say about that (laughs) yeah like how Okay, I you know I can't you know you can't really question another person's taste buds you know you don't you don't get the you don't ever have the luxury of experiencing another person's like sensory organs so I don't know how pumpkin pie interacts with your mouth parts or whatever but it sounds like something alien when they say they don't like pumpkin pie <laughs> I I mean I just you know I just go off the premise that I'm right. Okay, that's cool. I will also go off the premise that I'm right. And I feel yeah. like, you know, there's a good 1500 miles between us. Maybe uh, maybe rightness is location dependent. So the more Northeast you go, the righter you become. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm like, rightness can be local. So I can be locally correct and you right. can be locally correct but maybe those spheres of correctness just so does that mean if you come to thunder bay you'll hate pumpkin pie while you're here i don't know i have to say what about gingerbread I, I mean, yeah, i'm cool with gingerbread gingerbread's great what <laughs> bad connection bad connection <laughs> i mean i would i would visit thunder bay just for the name that's a cool name it's it's nice up here like to be honest it's nice i mean you know Mm -hmm. there's this green everywhere and um uh the north part of the city is terraced you know as as like Uh superior you know shrunk in 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 depth you know so it's terraced uh where i am in, in in the southern part of the city it's flat when you travel to the border, to the American border, U.S. Canadian border, um, you're you're traveling through a wide valley, and the mountains are all um, uh, mesas as opposed to like like mm-hmm. jagged, you know, um, continental shift uh, mountains. Right, right. They're all yeah. you know like water eroded, you know, mesas. Uh, not as dramatic as like Texas, but you know. And rolling farm, you know, land and and then, you know, the mountains either side. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's just winters are, are brutal here, you know, because 
it's they're they're just brutal it's cold there's a yeah, lot of I mean, snow you're far north and you're kind of you're in that part of the world where the winters are rough i mean enjoy yeah. it while it lasts i would say because everything might just keep heating up you might just you know this last winter um was so mild this is one thing that I, I had to explain to everyone in Texas about plugging in our cars uh, because we have, oh, yeah. Block, yeah, we have block heaters to, you know, mm -hmm. keep the engines warm so they don't freeze overnight and you can't turn them on. Um, so this last winter, uh, it was so, so, so mild. It's, it's not unusual. I mean, it's pretty normal for it to be minus 20 degrees Celsius here in the middle of winter. Um, not for months on end, but, you know, uh, it barely, we, we barely hit that throughout the entire winter. We didn't get a lot of snow. And so I like that, except for the fact that, you know, the reason why our, our winters are getting milder. But the thing is, is that we get the same amount of precipitation every year. No matter what. Right. Yeah. So you got whether it comes rain instead of snow. Whether it comes in snow or rain. So we got very little snow last winter. So the spring was really, really rainy, and then uh, the summer, no rain, above average heat. Like half my grass turned yellow, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we had a really, really, really rainy spring and and first part of of summer because we're still going to get that precipitation uh it just didn't come in snow oh man it's been it's been really weird in oregon the last year too we mm -hmm. have, we've had uh we've had a lot of like extreme weather events in february we had a really really like surprisingly brutal freeze which never really happens here and then uh the whole state is like experiencing drought conditions yeah we yeah. just haven't been getting very much rain. And then we had that shitty heat wave. You know, I mean, the heat wave, like, started down here, and it moved up through Canada. You guys, there were towns in Canada that got it just as Yeah, um, there was a, a, a town in uh, uh, British Columbia. Uh, that, like, burned to the ground. Well, first of all, two days before it burned to the ground, it set a, like, Canada-wide yeah. heat record. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it was in Celsius, but I think they they hit like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It was uh 50. Oh, was is no, that can't be right. I can't remember. Yeah, it, was, it was definitely 50, over 50. Yeah, I can't remember. It was really hot though. Um, and then two days later, two days later, burned to the ground. But that mm -hmm. heat wave in uh just Vancouver, the city of Vancouver alone in Canada, not Vancouver, Washington. Um killed like 700 or 900 people yeah it was bad. um yeah air conditioner air, air, air conditioners up here aren't standard um, so yeah same here in portland like i i got an air conditioner this year yeah yeah i named um, it Calvin coolidge uh uh and our buildings are designed to trap in heat so you have yeah so you have all of these buildings that are designed to trap in heat and don't have air conditioning so yeah you can't be surprised with temperatures like that that you have 700 or like i said it was either 700 or 900 somewhere around there people dying just from the heat in one city yeah it's it was pretty crazy and then all of the fires and like i said like lighten or litten 
uh, it's pronounced Lytton. Um, you know, they set this this crazy temperature record, and then two days later, it just doesn't exist anymore because every single building is gone mm -hmm. to the ground. You know, um, yeah, it's uh, it's weird. You know, we have ended up living in uh, very interesting times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, is that every generation though sees things going on in the world. Oh, this is it. It this is it this is the end times i mean they've it's been true it's just it, like every generation you know you, you can see throughout history every generation complains about the generations that come after them of course yeah, yeah. of course you know the Although thing our that, generation definitely like we were lazy we we definitely deserve the complaints <laughs> Us, uh, Gen Xers. yeah ish ish yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, but the thing too now is that with social media and 24-hour news, like we're seeing all the shit going on in every part of the mm -hmm. planet. Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, that wasn't a thing. And, right, right. you know, a hundred years ago, you found out about something major months later. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? But yeah. every generation thinks, oh, this is the end times. This is the end times. Like, well, that chop chop then you know like get on with it if, if this is the end times then you know move it along and bring it on you yeah. know well yeah i'm not really sure if end times is even a real thing it isn't it isn't but i do feel like i am getting a little worn out i do need to we should probably maybe we can find a way to bring this around to a, a, a happy occult finish <laughs> <laughs> this is the end times of episode 29 but not of the planet yes yeah hopefully we hope we hope. okay so let's bring it around to a happy um a, a happy finish okay. i was or a happy let's 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 do a happy uh, ending happy end <laughs> yeah um so <laughs> Join us for part two on OnlyFans. <laughs> uh, that's going to be behind a paywall. Right. Um, uh, okay, so uh, how about you tell everybody where they can find you online? All of this mm -hmm. I'll put into the show notes so everyone can just easily click, but tell everyone where they can find you uh, online and uh, do you have uh, anything exciting that you're going to be doing in the near future yeah i okay yeah all right well i have a website arnamancy.com um and i'm also arnamancy on twitter and instagram and facebook i'm probably most active on twitter uh, i try to be active on instagram but man it's just exhausting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and i have you know the the arnamancy podcast which has uh, i've just started season three and it's going really really well um, and I'm going, I'm actually going to, I do have a special event coming up the Friday before Halloween. So October 29th, I'm going to be doing a live stream on YouTube with a, uh, a cultist bartender. And we're going to be talking about occult themed cocktails nice. and talk about their sort of like, you know, magical correspondences and stuff like that. And then we'll taste the cocktails. It'll be remote. So I might be making cocktails myself. We haven't really figured out all the details how it's going to work, but okay. uh, I think it'll be fun. And yeah, for details on that, you'll just have to like follow me on social media. I will announce it in all of those places once we figure out that, what we're doing. Yeah, that sounds like fun. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think it'll be, it should be fun. Awesome. Um, yeah, and aside from that, I don't know that I have anything else super special happening, but check out the Arnimancy blog and the and the um, podcast. I've got a lot of uh, articles going back to like 2014 and lots of stuff about hermeticism and tarot and magic and the occult. Uh, sometimes, you know, other weird projects I'm working on and stuff like that. Fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. And as all, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying thank you. Oh, thank you. No, yeah. thank you. Absolutely. This has been a really, really, really good episode. So I'm really I, happy we did this. I have really enjoyed it. Like I, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit on social media before and I've mm -hmm. ordered some stuff from your shop and, uh, and I've always, you've always seemed like a really interesting person from a distance. So I'm glad we got a chance to like dig in. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. And uh, for the listeners, like I said, um, uh, all of Eric's uh, links are going to be in the show notes. And of course, as always, uh, my link is there that uh, if you click on that, that's going to get you to all of my links, my website, social media, YouTube channel, blah, 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 blah. So you can follow me, you can follow the, the uh, Lux files, uh, you can shop, you can watch, you can listen. Uh, so it's all good. And, uh, and Eric also, oh, once yeah. you get your universal discount code from the, un from the Enochian angels, I assume you'll be sharing that in the show notes as well. Or is it and on that note, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh the the angel said no it's private oh, damn. yeah all right well you know <laughs> <laughs> all right and on that note uh we're gonna say uh good night to all the listeners so all right good night listeners bye Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lux Files. You'll find all the guest links in the show notes, as well as the link www.laylokanzawin.com slash links. That link will get you to my page of links where you can then go to my Laylokanzawin website, The Lux Files page, and my Laylokanzawin YouTube channel that has all the Lux Files videos. It also has all my social media links there so you can follow me and The Lux Files. And don't forget, subscribe to the lux files wherever you get your podcasts and lastly if you enjoyed this episode please consider leaving me a review until next time